You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome once again to the Moe Gamer podcast. I'm Pete Davison of moegamer.net and today I am full of apple crumble. Sweet. Um, yeah, pretty nice. We went out for, for breakfast dessert today. As, uh, me and the wife have been fancying dessert all week, and we discovered that uh, Deliveroo deliver desserts to our area now, but they charge a fortune for it, so we decided we'd just go out for dessert for breakfast today. So we did. It's just nice. Uh, I am joined once again by my good friend and colleague, uh, Mr. Chris Kasky of MrGilderPixels.com. Hello. Hello. How you I'm full today? of pecan pie because of Thanksgiving. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. So, no such excuse over here. We we just felt like stuff in our faces. So, all good. Never right. a bad time for baked goods. Indeed. So, you had any good Black Friday deals? Yeah, I kinged out pretty good. I got um, Assassin's Creed Origins because um, I just got a new 4K TV and I'm going to be getting a PS4 Pro. So, I'm really nice. tickled by the idea of exploring ancient Egypt in 4K. <laughs> yep. So, I got Assassin's Creed Origins. I got Injustice 2, uh, the complete edition, so I can play Hellboy and the Ninja Turtles, which I'm very excited about. Nice. Um, I got Burnout Paradise Remaster for the PS4. And I got the Street Fighter Anniversary Collection because I'm very excited to be able to play Alpha 3 without having to hook my Dreamcast up. Mm -hmm. And I got uh, Sonic Forces for the Switch, all for nice. under 100 bucks all, all together. So that's a pretty good haul. So you made out with a bunch of old games, which is cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, 20 bucks or less a piece. That's what I yeah. use with, with most, you know, with what big name Western public like stuff by EA and Ubisoft and. Um, Warner Brothers and all the big publishers stuff. I usually wait for twenty dollar and under Black Friday deals because it's not oh, like that stuff yeah. ever gets rare. So I just kind of wait and then I king out. Yeah, exa exactly. I mean, it's dead easy to get uh, to get a lot of that stuff for under a tenner in some cases these days, depending on how old it is. So uh, yeah, I, I haven't actually bought anything for Black Friday this year, which uh, surprises me because there's there's a few things I've had my eye on, but I just haven't sort of quite felt the urge to push myself over the edge at the minute i'm trying to convince my wife to get herself a nintendo switch and i'm i think i'm almost there oh, but not yeah. quite i think i'm almost there but uh just needs a little little more persuading but uh two yeah, switch house that's a good time yes indeed um i, I just figured it well we've we've had some some nice uh sort of um bits of money from parents and things for because uh, my wife's birthday is in mid-November, and then we've had some money for Christmas, and we've had some money for sort of doing our house up a bit and that sort of thing as well. So we've got a bit of uh, a bit of money to spend, and I just think she'd enjoy it because uh, I mean, at the moment she she plays a lot of Final Fantasy fourteen and she plays a, a lot of tablet games. Mm. Um, and I just think there's a lot of stuff on Switch that will appeal to her that I've oh, already yeah. got as well. And the nice thing about uh, collecting physical versions is that we wouldn't have to buy them again, sure. which is nice. Yeah, so and the eShop's got so much good stuff on it these days. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, um, she likes sort of puzzle games and stuff. So we've already got Puyo Puyo, Tetris, and um, Soldam, and a few other bits and bobs as well. Um, she's vaguely interested in Pokemon Let's Go as well. She played through Pokemon uh, Sun when it came out on oh, the okay. 3DS and enjoyed it a lot more than she expected. So, worth a look. 
Anyway, right. Uh, should we talk about some news? Yes, let's. Yeah, there's not been a huge amount going on recently, but there's still a few stories we can talk about a little bit. So uh, let's kick off with this first story, which is Microsoft have apparently acquired Inexile Entertainment and Obsidian. Um, so this was announced at uh, Microsoft's XO18 thing. Uh, so Inexile are um, the guys behind Bard's Tale, Wasteland 2, um, and Obsidian. Probably best known these days for uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2 and uh, Fallout New Vegas. And then what have they done recently? Was Pillars of Eternity was them, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was their big, like, let's try to reboot the old style of PC games that everyone loves us for. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, well, I mean, what do you think about this? Oh, it's, uh... I mean, as someone who doesn't have or doesn't plan on buying an Xbox One, it's a little sad to me because I do generally enjoy Obsidian's output. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like their kind of their writing and sense of humor. Um, you know, yeah. I know, I know. Um, you know, we've been complaining and, and joking around about Fallout a lot over the past couple of days because of the <laughs> release of '76 and all of that. But um, you know. It, New Vegas is kind of the shining gem of modern Fallout in terms of story mm-hmm. and world building. So um, it does make me sad that I might lose access to Obsidian games on on console. Yeah, I was I was going to say most most Microsoft stuff comes to at the very least the Microsoft store these days, and I think yeah. they've kind of twigged that they're not really going to ever dethrone Steam as well. So a lot of a lot of Microsoft published stuff now also comes to Steam as well. So. Uh, the only slightly awkward thing for some PC gamers who haven't upgraded yet is that a lot of Microsoft published stuff requires Windows 10 these days. Um, but, uh, I mean, well, that's an issue to some people and not to others. So, But, uh, yeah, Obsidian and Inexile, I've never been hugely attached to either of them. I mean, I've enjoyed some Obsidian games, but they're, they're not my favourite experiences by any means. Uh, I enjoyed their South Park game. That was really good. That was a really pleasant surprise, actually, quite how good that was. You liked uh, Alpha did... Protocol, didn't you, too? You really liked Alpha Oh, yeah, Protocol. that's them, isn't it? Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, Alpha, Alpha Protocol was uh, was cool. Um, that's the game that... That's a funny one, because it's, it's one of those ones that wasn't received all that well when it was first released, and now it's... I wouldn't say sort of universally loved or anything, but it's 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 very much got a, a cult appeal now, for various reasons. Alpha Protocol is is I remember back when I played it when it was a bit more current. Um, I described it as out Mass Effecting Mass Effect mm-hmm. in terms in terms of the character interaction, and uh, um, I haven't replayed it recently, but certainly based on my memories of it and sort of video clips that I've watched recently, I, I would probably stand by that. It's got a a really good way of sort of uh, molding the protagonist to how you respond to situations and so uh, you, you're mostly sort of picking attitudes rather than specific lines which i know a lot of people take the piss out of with sort of simplified dialogue systems in the more recent fallout games and stuff like that but it worked really well in alpha protocol so you, you could play the main character as a complete asshole if you wanted to or you could do him as this sort of smooth suave james bond type thing and the while you'd still go through the same major story beats the actual sort of context of it would change very much based on how much how you'd been playing the protagonist so yeah that was that was a highlight of their back catalog other stuff knights of the old republic 2 i didn't love because i've never been sort of a huge star wars guy and sort of at the time i played knights of the old republic 2 it was sort of while it was still in a bit of a state <laughs> yeah so um <laughs> well, that's that's also the other side of obsidian games 
They're, yes. They're kind of perpetually in a state. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I mean, I, I mean, I've, I said to you before that uh, if, if there's a game that needs extensive modding to, to make worth playing, I'm kind of inclined to not play it in the first place so i know a lot of people would probably disagree with me on that and say i'd miss out on a bunch of great experiences there but you know i just i just can't be bothered (laughs) no me neither there's plenty of games out there i can play that i don't need to put that much work into and i think back to the our horror episode when you were telling me about like all the hoops you had to jump through to play that uh modded version of that fatal frame yeah, and I was. Yeah, so I, 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 yeah. I suppose I'm making myself sound like a bit of a hypocrite there, aren't I? But <laughs> well, it's you all know, about that, how that, much that, you care about the experience. If you really yes. want to, if you really want to play that specific game, you're going to go through the work. Uh, but to me, it's just like, um, <laughs> like yeah, I'll just go I, I, play I mean, something it, I can turn on and play. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we consider something like a Bethesda game, I've played enough of those now to know that I don't really enjoy the base Bethesda game experience. So I'm not going to go out of my way to mod it just to make it into something that I might enjoy a little bit more. So whereas Fatal Frame 4, I knew it was going to be something that I would enjoy. So yeah, it was it was worth the effort in that case. But uh, And also, in, in that case, it actually wasn't a huge amount of effort either because, well, my Wii was already soft modded to play import sure. games anyway. And so it was. It was pretty much just a case of copying some files onto an SD card. So that wasn't uh, wasn't too difficult at all. But anyway, um, right. Moving on. Do you want to talk a bit about Destiny Connect? I sure do, because it looks sure. like a lot of fun. So um, we have a new RPG coming from Nipponichi, and it looks adorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Destiny Connect is a time travel focused RPG with a very kind of cartoony um cg anime style that's kind of inspired a bit by um it almost has a little bit of a western euro comic flavor to it in a lot yes, of ways yes um it's, it's already kind of gotten some flack for not looking anime enough but i think it looks <laughs> lovely everything kind of has a very toy-like sheen to it so it mm. almost doesn't look like a game so much as it looks like kind of toys in a diorama yeah, um, yeah. And we, we we don't know too much about it, but it's kind of got a like a. It's clear that they're going for a very whimsical child fairy tale kind of setting here. So the game is set in Clockney, <laughs> which, um, and the characters include a curious young girl named Sherry, uh, Isaac, a mecca that Sherry found in her father's room with the ability to time travel, and her childhood friend, Pegrio, who is a shy worrywart. So, uh, I love games that are kind of whimsical and kind of child fairy tale influenced, so this really is on my radar. Yeah, I, I really like sort of the time travel concept as well. I know it's something that's quite difficult to get right, but this sounds like it's... Um so I've got quite a strong focus on visiting the same areas in different time periods. Um, they say sort of the key concept behind it is um, sort of the, the Y2K bug. Um, oh, cool. And, and, and how people had to um, had to deal with that and all the all the sort of behind-the-scenes work they had to go into that because obviously the Y2K bug ended up being absolutely nothing to worry about whatsoever. But That was only what, because of hard work that they exactly, put in to exactly, fix it a lot before of, it was an issue. 
yeah exactly exactly all the preventative measures that people put in place but um i've talked a bit about shadow of memories on here before and on maria gamer as well and th- that uses sort of the same concept of visiting the same areas throughout different time periods and having uh, sort of uh, making something happen in the past and that having an effect on what happens in the future and that sort of thing so if it's if it involves that sort of thing then yeah i'm going to be very happy indeed yeah Actually, Most sort of getting a, it's getting a slight, uh, almost like a gravity rush vibe from some of the visuals as well. With the, oh, absolutely! The, with sort of the color scheme and the European architecture and that sort of thing, it looks very sort of um, Germanic in some ways. Yeah, it, you know what? I get a I get a Professor Layton vibe. Yes, off it in yes, a big that's way, probably a good. Yeah. Which is a series of games I don't particularly like to play, but I love mm-hmm. the look. I love the look and setting of. Yes. Um, most importantly, the director for the game, Yoshihiko Toda, says that the game is turning out to be a game that has a similar vibe to the golden age of RPGs for the Super Famicom and in, and games that were released in the 90s. So that's what we want to hear. Uh, yes. cl- classic turn-based, command-based battles. Um, good stuff. Going to be one worth Excellent. looking out for. Excellent. So, so the JRPG is coming back, is it? It's yeah. coming back. It's coming back again, even though it never went away and comes back every year. <laughs> exactly. All right, so that is due to arrive uh, in Japan in February of next year. Um, so they're, they're currently about three quarters of the way through developing that at the moment, apparently. So there are a few more screenshots, and I'm not sure if there's been a trailer yet, but there's certainly been a few more screenshots of uh, snuck out since we've uh, since we first saw the announcement of that, which is nice. All right, moving on. Uh, Battle Princess Madeline is coming uh, to Switch, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC in uh, December of this year, and to Wii U and Vita in 2019, apparently. Which is cool. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I recognize the name of this game for some reason, but I can't remember why. Do you know was, anything about this? Yeah, it was a big Kickstarter, darling. Oh, was uh, that it? Yeah. Yeah, two years ago, back in 2017, it was a pretty pretty well-circulated Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. The, the whole thing about Battle Princess Madeline was there's this game designer who loved old loves old-school games. He's a pixel artist by trade, yeah. and uh, he used to like to play uh, Ghouls and Ghosts, mm-hmm. or Ghosts and Goblins, or whatever the heck version. Um, and his daughter asked him one day like what would it I, I wish there was a version of this where i could be a girl or i could mm-hmm. be a princess so he was like all right i'm gonna make a game for my daughter <laughs> and, and so he made basically his he's his take on a ghost and goblin style platformer with a with a female protagonist um nice and it's just adorable you know great pixel art there's some cool animated um like story cinematics and stuff now yeah. um and I believe um, Limited Run or one of those houses was kind of attached to it to do physical presses of it later. Yes, that sounds right. So um, I, I just, it's one of those indie games. Whenever I see an indie game with pretty pixel art, I always try to make sure to throw a throw a shout out on here for And I think that's mm. going to be one worth looking out for. Yeah, this looks really cool, actually. I mean, like the, the art style, he seems to have really nailed that Ghosts and Goblins look, definitely. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, lo- it looks like basically a new ghosts and goblins game in many ways so yeah definitely one to take a look at um so there's some trailers around for that at the moment we you in vita port so in 2019 yeah good on them good on them all for uh keeping them alive all yeah, right yeah uh moving on then uh apparently uh hollow knight's physical copies have been cancelled for yeah. some reason so yeah. what happened here they so, they basically said that it was it was a too much 
because they're yeah. a very they're a very small development team, and, and it was mm-hmm. just too, it was too much for them to handle. Yeah, Work, working to get those physical copies made and 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 press ready while also continuing to work on update me and maintain the game. Yeah. Um, now they have said that they are not ruling out the existence of physical copies eventually, likely through one of the limited press houses. Mm-hmm. But the but just the the work involved in creating a, a, an actual retail mass right. press mass okay. press published yeah. version was was proving to be too much for the studio to handle. Okay, oh, well that's that's a shame because I, I know Hollow Knight's been quite well received. I haven't played it myself, but I know a lot of people have uh, have enjoyed it. And... Yeah, I was very excited for this, which is why I kind of flagged it as something to talk about. So yeah. It'll be worth keeping an ear to the ground for if limited run or strictly limited or someone picks it up later. Yeah. But but it yeah. looks like we're not getting the retail copy we were promised. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, okay, moving on. Just a little story. Um, this uh, it doesn't probably doesn't affect a lot of uh, Western players, but um, I thought it was, it was an interesting thing anyway. Uh, Konami is closing down one of its mobile games in January of 2019 called Tokimeki Idol. Um, but the the interesting thing about this is is not the fact that they are closing down this game. It's the fact that when it has closed down, they're going to update it to an offline version, so oh, you I can carry on playing it. Yeah, it's the best. This is not something I recall seeing happen before with a mobile game in particular, um, and it's it's something I know a lot of people would be keen to see happen with uh, well every mobile, mobile game ever, every <laughs> mobile game ever, um, but also things like MMOs and stuff as well. So there's a bunch of dead MMOs out there that people would love to see either resurrected with fan servers or just still playable offline. So I think yeah. sort of my my favorite example from uh, sort of my own personal gaming history would be City of Heroes, which yes was a fantastic game um, that that unfortunately died out. There are still efforts to try and resurrect that in one way, and there's also someone working on a, uh, a kind of successor to it as well. Um, but we haven't heard anything sort of really concrete about that or when that's going to happen. So, yeah, City of Heroes is 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 something that uh, yeah a lot of people would love the opportunity to play again. Smartphone games, I don't know. Um, some people get really attached to them, and especially if you've if you've pumped a lot of money into them. It, yeah, it's it's a, obviously going to be a bummer for them to shut down and all sure. of that stuff that you've you've earned or achieved or bought um, to to be down the toilet. But um, you know what game this happened with? Uh, while you were talking, I was trying to think of Aglia. Uh, mm. uh, um, so that was a game that was a mobile game that was developed by uh, Brownie Brown, which are the people who are who handle the Ma- uh, Secret of Mana games. Oh, okay. Um, for Square Enix, but they made this game called Eglia. I think it's called Eglia Lost, mm-hmm. but um, that was a, a, a pretty good, high production value mobile game. And uh, when the actual online component went under, they patched it and modified it to be a completely offline experience. Yeah, and that's cool. Because I mean, in a lot of cases, they, they, there's no reason why these games couldn't work offline. I mean, there's no reason why you can't just download all of the data. You can still have like the gacha function and stuff in there just like it's implemented in something like xenoblade or something like that so yeah they just change they just change the rate that you get the drops and stuff so because yeah. you can't buy the premium currency anymore yeah so yeah in a lot of cases i mean obviously stuff like dragalia lost and grand blue fantasy they have the multiplayer co-op component in there but the actual main bulk of the game the main story and even some of the events and stuff there's there's no need for them to be online 
Um, so yeah, ho- hopefully we'll see a bit more of this happening going forward. But uh, you never know. But uh, interesting that it's Konami doing it after sort of everyone whinging at Konami. But you know, it's not one of their most well-known games or anything. But uh, yes. Anyway, it's like we like we said when we did our Konami episode, Konami's making some weird decisions. And by yeah. when, I say, when I say weird decisions, I mean good decisions <laughs> <laughs> lately. So uncharacteristic of Konami decisions. <laughs> so who knows? I really think there's some some been some shakeups and new people. Yeah, yeah, sounds plausible. All right, uh, moving on. The new No More Heroes game, Travis Strikes Again, is going to have a physical edition in North America and Europe. Uh, and the physical release, because this this was sort of developed primarily as a digital game, the physical version is actually going to include the season pass with it as well. Yeah. Uh, which is a really nice way of doing it, I think. Um, yeah. So, uh, and this could work for a lot of uh, other digital-only games as well. So if you think of, like, sort of Integrate stuff... Um, like a physical version of something like Mighty Gunvolt Burst or Blaster Master or something like that. Um, if it was a physical copy that then came with all the DLC and stuff, yeah, that would be an ideal way of doing it. So this is uh, this is really cool to. I thought to this was worth bringing to our attention because um, a while ago we talked about how cool it was with uh, when Nintendo released Torna Xenoblade Two, the Torna expansion. Yes. Um, so they released a premium priced retail copy of the Torna expansion, which included the DLC season pass for the original Xenoblade, and we said, mm-hmm. hey, this is a really cool idea. It's not ideal, but at least it's something. And yeah. um, and we said, and we kind of said when we talked about that, that we hoped this was a sign of Nintendo kind of doing this kind of consumer-friendly practice more in the future. Mm. So when I saw this news about Travis Strikes Again, I noticed that Nintendo is publishing the physical copy. Yes. yes. So this this is them doing, again, the same thing they did with Torna. Basically giving you an incentive to buy that premium priced retail copy by including the DLC yeah. season pass. Yeah, and as as I've said before, Nintendo seems to be pretty wise to this now. They seem to be aware that there is a hunger for physical versions of stuff that might be sort of digital only in practice. So, like we've previously talked about, like the printable Switch inlays that they've done for things like the Octo expansion for Splatoon Two and stuff like that as well. So, yeah, um, Nintendo seem to seem to have the right idea with this. So that's all good. Also, uh, no more heroes. <laughs> January <laughs> January eighteenth. Huzzah. Yes, I love this series. I, I still haven't played it. I've got I've got the two Wii games on my shelf, but I haven't actually tried them yet. So, uh, like I've said before, Grasshopper Manufacturing is a bit of a black spot in my knowledge. I do need to actually sit down and spend some time with their games at some point. Um, wow. And and sort of get a, get a feel for what they're all about. I mean, I've I've got an idea of, of some of their characteristics from playing Project Zero Four, but uh, yeah, so some of sort of the, the the stuff that is specifically their own work, specifically Suda's own work, and uh, yeah, yeah, getting yeah. a feel for that. Because like, I, I own loads of Grasshopper Manufacturer games, I just haven't played them yet. <laughs> mm. Do you have a contact for the for the DS? No, no, that is one I would like to get, actually. That's the one where sort of this different things happen on each screen, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, mm. that's a really interesting... That's kind of, you know, Suda's all about um, kind of mixing up genres and asking questions and breaking the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. And con- Contact was his attempt to do that with an rpg like, yeah. like a 16-bit style rpg like an mm-hmm. earthbound kind of thing and it's it's really quite a curious wonderful game mm. yeah that is one i, I do want to uh, try and pick up at some point but it's, uh, it's uh, proving quite hard to to find but uh, i'm sure it'll turn up eventually 
Alright, uh, continuing, uh, we have the Game Paradise Cruising Mix Special is launching on November the 30th, which actually isn't that far away now, it's what, next Friday at the time of recording? Yeah. Um, so, for the unfamiliar, this is a super hyper goofy shoot 'em up um, <laughs> <laughs> It's being published by Dejiga Games for PlayStation 4 and PC. Um, do you know much else about this? Because I, I just know it's 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 pretty crazy and cartoony and looks like yeah, a lot of fun, but so, I don't know a lot of its background. So in the same way that Parodius is Konami's kind of parody shooter that pulls characters and properties from like all the history of Konami, uh, Game Paradise Cruise and Mix was, uh, for the arcade and the Saturn back in the day, was uh, Jalico attempting to do the same thing. Oh, okay. So it's cool. kind of, I mean... There aren't a whole lot of like big heavy Jalico fans out there, but but still, it's really neat that this is a thing that exists. So like a lot of the characters and and stages and stuff are kind of just references to Jalico's history as a developer, right. and um, it's just goofy because it's almost like a the story is kind of like Wreck It Ralph almost. Like you're mm-hmm. kind of going in and out of different arcade games and stuff. Yeah. So, so the st- the stages are different depending on kind of which arcade game you've been sucked into, or sometimes you're in the arcade and like you're just flying through the <laughs> arcade itself, and it's just kind of goofy and fun and self-referential. And I yeah. like when I like when video games are about video games. So yes, this is this is one of them. Yeah. So that looks cool. Um, so that is uh, due out. E- what do we say? Japan on November 29th and coming th- uh, over here on the 30th. Mm-hmm. Um, worth noting for those who care about such things, apparently the PlayStation 4 version has had some edits to one of the special attacks, I think, because of Sony's fear of boobies. But um, <laughs> I, <laughs> the uh, the Steam version is as ever uncut. Uh, there's also going to be a limited run games version of the PS4 version. Um, with There's a special edition that comes with some extra characters, an art book, uh, an anime OVA uh, from 1997. Uh, on DVD and two soundtrack CDs and some replica flyers as well. So that looks like a pretty nice special edition if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be having a look at that definitely because I like a shoot 'em up, I like a self referential game. And if it's Jalico, there's a possibility the written Tam from Rodland in there might be somewhere. So <laughs> it's very possible. <laughs> All right, uh, continuing on then. Uh, Namco Bandai announced a game called Ninja Box. Uh, I haven't looked at this at all, so I'll, I'll let you speak on this one. I just thought it was curious because uh, <coughs> I had read the news on it, and it has like a cute, cartoony aesthetic, so obviously I'm all about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I had read the descriptions, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of kind of another Minecraft Me Too clone kind of thing. But um, they're describing it as a secret base-building RPG. And when I looked at the footage, it didn't look like Minecraft. It looks like um, Fortnite. Okay. So uh, you're you're collecting materials, and instead of building things like cube by cube, I think you're literally just building the components. So like, like staircase, wall, dresser. Like... So you're building your secret base with these components out out of uh, materials you collect, and um, because it's kind of a ja- also a Japanese RPG, I think it'll probably be a bit more single player friendly, kind of in mm-hmm. the same way that um, I really appreciated um, 
Dragon Quest Builders basically yes. took took a more focused approach to Minecraft's style of gaming. So, so I'm hoping that this Ninja Box will take some of the things I do think are intriguing about Fortnite and and applying it to a genre and a style of game that I'm more interested in. Mm. It just it just looks curious. <clears throat> yeah, it's 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 got cute art as well. Um, so yeah, it looks like that could be a lot of fun actually. So. Yeah, one to watch on that. There's no release date for that yet, uh, but there is a, a trailer now, as well as some screenshots around the place, so check those out if you want to know a bit yeah. more. Uh, do you want to talk about Devil May Cry on Netflix? I do. Um, Go on, then. Just uh, just that, uh, the for a while, the people behind the Netflix Castlevania series were hinting that they had scored another big property um and they couldn't talk about it for a while a lot of people thought it was going to be zelda i don't know why yeah um <laughs> but it turns out that it's devil may cry so yes. we're going to be getting a devil may cry animated series from the same people behind the excellent castlevania animated series mm -hmm. um and i'll be curious to see what that turns out like because there already was a devil may cry anime and it was pretty good yeah so I don't know what this is going to be like as opposed to the Devil May Cry anime, but um, yeah. I'm excited because Castlevania was wonderful and they've proven that they know how to treat a franchise with respect. So I'm excited to see what it looks like. Yeah, so the, so the guy behind it, Adi Shankar, is describing it and Castlevania as, as what he calls his bootleg multiverse. So he, he hasn't sort of specifically said that there's going to be explicit links between the Devil May Cry and Castlevania series but there's presumably going to be some things in common like art style and stuff and, and obviously the potential for crossover as well with with the subject matter of devil may cry and castlevania there's there's sort of potential for that sort of thing uh, and also i think the thing i loved most about it was his comment that he he picks up the devil may cry uh, devil may cry writes himself so i quote so the jabronis in hollywood don't fuck this one up too <laughs> yeah i love it he's he's great uh, he's great he actually cares and it's really refreshing yeah so, uh, yeah, good on him for that. Definitely. All right, uh, a couple more things. Uh, Inti Creates confirmed at Anime NYC recently that uh, Dragon Mark for Death, which is their, their new sort of action RPG um, side-scroller pixel art game that is uh, on the way, that is coming on the 31st of January 2019 in North America and Europe, and they've also confirmed a physical release for it as well, which made me very happy indeed. Uh, not a lot. Oh, has the physical release been confirmed for Western territories too? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, they, Last time yeah. I read that it was only the Japanese. Yes. So it's um yeah oh, this, yes. it, it, yeah it was announced on their English Twitter. So yeah, it appears that uh, that we are getting the physical version of this as well. Sweet so. baby, I was going to import it. Mm -hmm. Um. So the the way this is going to be sold. Um. Digitally, it's going to be sold as two separate packs of fourteen ninety nine each. So one of them is going to have the frontline fighters, so that contains the Empress and Warrior characters, who are uh, supposedly more friendly to beginner players, um, and they they are sort of DPS and tank types. Uh, and then the second pack is the Advanced Attackers pack, that contains the Shinobi and Witch characters, who are more uh, complicated to play as. You can buy either one first, and then buy the other one as DLC if you want to. Uh, if you buy the physical version, that will have all four characters available from the start. So um, they haven't confirmed that that's going to be out on the same day as the digital version, but they're apparently aiming to have it as close to the digital release date as possible. So, um, And that's the reason why they're releasing it on January the 31st, to try and sort of minimize that gap as much as possible. So watch out for that in uh, probably early February. 
at, uh, at retail, I guess, is what that's looking like. The art style for this one is really unique. I'm mm. super excited about it. Yes, definitely. All right, um, you've got a couple more stories, so fire away. Yeah, uh, a new Super Robot Wars coming. Super mm -hmm. Robot Wars T uh, for for the Super Robot Wars fans out there. Um, the coolest news about it is that there's some really neat new properties being added that have never appeared in a Super Robot Wars game before. Um, most notably, uh, I guess some of the ships from Cowboy Bebop, mm -hmm. um, which is tremendously cool. Also, uh, Magic Knight Ray Earth, which is really, yeah. really neat because the robots from Magic Knight Ray Earth are beautiful. So. I didn't realize there were robots in that at all. Oh, yeah. Was, oh, I yeah. The, was the pretty girls get giant robots. Uh, <laughs> sweet. <laughs> yeah, they're really, really cool looking. Um, yeah, I love Magic Knight Ray Earth, so very excited to see them getting integrated into that. And as has been the case with the last few Super Robot Wars, there will be an Asian, Asian region English language release. Mm -hmm. So um, it will be available yes. uh, if you want to order it. And enjoy all the robot smashy action. Mm. I'm kind of surprised this doesn't come west officially now because it's, it's impossible been... because of the licensing. Oh uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, but um, yeah, because I mean, I mean, there's an established market for it clearly because everyone goes nuts every time a new one of these gets announced, and everyone's been really, really happy that the last few have had Asia English releases. But yeah, yeah. I guess the licensing must be an it's, nightmare. It's impossible. <laughs> but we we do occasionally get the. Uh, there's so Super Robot Wars has two series that run right. There's the traditional Super Robot Wars, and then there's the Super Robot Wars OG games, um, which is, is original generation. Mm -hmm. um, and original generation games don't have the famous robots in it. Yeah, it's it's just an original storyline with newly designed robots, many of which are tributes to classic robots from anime, but they are original. So occasionally we'll get original generation games in the West. Mm hmm. Um, because there's no licensing nightmares. So, like, we did, right. there was a series on the Game Boy Advance back in the day, and we got those. Actually, I think that was the last time, but, um, it has happened, but it's, but we never get the proper games with, with Mazinger and all the other robots. Yeah. There. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the last story then is that there's going to be a new version of Dead or Alive Extreme 3 called Dead or Alive Extreme Scarlet. This is coming for PS4 and Switch. Uh, is there a release date for this yet? Uh, March 20th in Japan. Um, no word on an Asian English version, I don't think, but uh, there was for the previous one, so entirely possible. Um, so this version features all of the girls from the base game, uh, which is Kasumi, Momiji, Hitomi, Helena, Mary Rose, Honoka, Neo Tango, Kokoro, and Ayane. Uh, it also adds Misaki from uh, Dead or Alive Extreme Venus Vacation, which is the free-to-play one on PC, I think? Yeah, um, yeah, the browser-based one, I think. Yes, uh, and then they're adding one more character who they haven't revealed yet, um, and that's going to be new to Scarlet version. So the uh, the Nintendo Switch version incorporates what they call a soft 4D engine that combines the um, the existing engine for sort of um, the the body modeling in Dead or Alive and Dead or Alive Extreme, which has always been very good for. It's mostly known for its breast jiggles, to be fair, but 
uh, in general it's it's a great engine for character modeling in general because like you can you can do things like sort of see muscles moving and uh clothing can get disheveled characters can get wet and sweaty and that sort of thing as well so it's it's a very good engine for modeling that side of things the switch version they are uh, combining all the things that engine does well already uh, with nintendo switch hd rumble which they describe uh, they are attempting to provide the feeling of various jiggles to go with the visuals of the soft engine the developers say players will get to experience a new kind of jiggling experience with the left and right <laughs> Joy-Cons having their own movement and vibrations. <laughs> yeah, it's, wor- it's worth noting that you'll have to make a pretty hard decision here whether or not you want the PS4 version with its full VR support. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh. Oh, but it will, but it's going to be censored. At the, yes. Like there, there's going to be omitted features and omitted outfits from the PS4 version. So the yes. the, the Switch version is going to have all that, but obviously you won't have the VR compatibility. So yes, so the, the stuff that's going to be missing from the PS4 version are the items that you can use to deliberately uh, loosen the girls' outfits because normally the outfits sort of get um, loosened by activity. So like if you get a bit rambunctious in one of the mini games or something that like the bikini will come off a bit and that sort of thing but yeah these items would let you sort of do that deliberately there's also some skincare items and can't remember exactly what those do but those won't be in the ps4 version uh, and some of the dlc costumes will be uh, omitted from the ps4 version as well um so the main reasons you might want to look at this even if you played the previous one is that it's apparently um it's a bit easier to gain uh, money and own a level, so there's a bit less grinding involved in it. And, um, yeah, they say they've made various parts of the game more comfortable and easier to play. Don't know what that means, but, uh, yeah. Dead or Alive Extreme 3 was, was all right. I, I preferred 2 because it just had more to do in it. Like, I, I really yeah. like the jet skiing and stuff in the second one. But, uh, I mean, 3 was three was a nice graphical showcase, if nothing else. And it was a nice comfy game to spend a few minutes with, but... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna retry. I mean, I didn't I didn't like the PS4 version of the of three much. I, I kind of actually sold my copy because I was like, I'm never gonna play this again. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's just something about having it on the Switch that appeals to me more. Ma- yeah. mainly, mainly because this is such like a passive, relaxed game. Yeah, and it, exactly. It's, and it's the kind of game that I would play on the handheld while watching yeah. a movie out of the corner of my eye on the TV and relax yes. with. And yeah, this- so. It's good for the Switch, I think. Yeah, I've I've always thought of this as like a really nice relaxing series. Like I I think of it as like sort of the, the certainly the old versions were definitely the perfect summer game, just because the the combination of the cheesy soundtrack, which I absolutely love, by the way, I know it's <laughs> crap, but uh, I absolutely adore the soundtracks in the Dead or Alive Extreme games. It's it's just such a wonderfully happy summery game that like even if you're not sort of going on holiday or anything, you can sort of have that nice sort of sunny, comfy experience where everyone's having fun and having a nice time, and it's yeah, it's just happy. It's for me, it's. It, I mean, obviously, it's got pretty girls in it, which is nice. But it's never sort of been about sort of the sexy side of it for me. It's always just been about that really nice, pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I will probably look into the Switch version of that as well. Okay, um, I think that's pretty much everything we've got on our list. Was there anything else you wanted to add? No, I think that's pretty good. Okay, good stuff. Oh, actually, one thing I have just spotted uh, last minute. Um, there is, Sega has announced they are doing a Sega Ages version of OutRun uh, for Nintendo Switch. Um, Sweet. Which is nice. 
So uh, this is not the same as the Sega Ages version, which is on PS2, which is the one with the sort of uh, polygonal graphics. So it sort of plays the same, but it has 3D graphics. This is closer in execution to what they did with the 3DS version a while back. Um, so uh, it it will include sort of the ability to sort of tune up your car slightly so you can fiddle around with the cornering engine, tyre and bumper parts to change how your car handles. But otherwise, it looks very much like the original arcade game, uh, which should be cool. Uh, it will have uh, gyro controls as well, so you can play using your Switch as a simulated steering wheel if you want to. Uh, if you don't want to, then don't do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one thing I hope they do add that was in the 3DS version was um, the 3DS version had this facility that sort of simulated the hydraulic arcade cabinet. Oh. Whereas um, you'd sort of steer around corners, it would actually sort of tilt the entire display from side to side. Um, so if they keep that in on the Switch, I'll be very happy because that that was a really stupid, pointless feature, but it, it just really added a lot to the 3DS version. Um, so yeah, there, there is a screenshot of this Sega Ages version that looks like uh, sort of the uh, makes it look like it's displayed on the CRT of the arcade machine. So hopefully that means that feature will be present and correct, but uh, we'll see. I love stupid, pointless features. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway. All right, I think that's everything for now. So uh, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back and talk about what we've been playing recently. So see you in a moment. Welcome back. So, for our second segment, we usually talk about what we've been playing recently. Actually, the first thing I'd like to bring up is something that I've been watching recently um, that uh, I just wanted to give a bit of a shout-out to because it's uh, it's something cool that I've seen develop. Um, I wrote a bit about this on murraygamer.net recently, um, and that is the, uh, the former teletext institution, which is Digitizer. Um, Digitizer was a daily games magazine that ran on the um, the teletext service on uh, UK televisions, which is not something you guys had in America, I believe. But yeah, um, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so, so teletext in a nutshell is a system where alongside the usual TV broadcasts, they also broadcast um, text data. So uh, you could press a button on your remote control and you could switch the TV view onto this text display. Um, and you could then, um, each page of information had a number. You could type in a number and it would then scroll through to that page. It would take a bit of time to load because the different pages were broadcast at different times. So you'd have to sort of wait for um, the actual broadcast to reach that page again. But there was all sorts of stuff. So like you could get news through there, you could get sporting information. And one of the things on one of the channel's uh, teletext services was this thing called Digitizer, which was a games magazine. And they positioned themselves as the, the world's only, or the world's best, daily games magazine. And this was sort of before the internet was a thing. This started in the late 90s, so, mm-hmm. so internet internet stuff was, was starting to become a thing. But most people definitely in the UK still only had dial-up connections at best, and were often still using closed services like CompuServe and that kind of thing. So... This was, at the time, for a lot of people, the most up-to-date way to get gaming news and reviews and that sort of thing. 
Um, and it became known um, both for sort of being very honest about things because they weren't attached to a particular publisher or advertisers. Um, they weren't sort of obliged to be particularly nice to anyone. Um, so they, they, ga- they gained a reputation for sort of having very honest reviews of even sort of uh, big releases of the time, which a lot of people grew to respect. But the main thing that people came to digitize it for was actually not the gaming stuff. It was more sort of the, the humorous side of things because it was, it was very sort of reverently written often with surreal humor and that kinds of thing um so for those familiar with sort of um british magazines like viz and that kind of thing it was a similar kind of thing but without sort of the outright offensive content in there that viz has so it was very irreverent very cheeky uh there was a letters page that you'd write in to deliberately get insulted by one of the staff members and that kind of thing <laughs> it was it was just sort of a, very much an institution for a lot of people in the the late 90s and the early 2000s um the guy behind it uh, is a guy called paul rose uh, also known as mr biffo that was sort of his, his pen name when he wrote um digitizer he's been working on a few things over the course of the last few years he's been writing for tv um he he relaunched the digitizer brand a few years back with his own website called digitizer 2000 um and he's been trying to get people together to produce um basically a tv show he's he's put it on youtube but uh, he, he's, he's he's making it like a late 90s tv show basically so he's got people together uh, mostly uh people who sort of surround the um uh, there's a, a youtuber called uh, Stuart ashen uh who he, he mainly reviews sort of tat from charity shops and stuff but he really knows his stuff about retro computers and stuff and <coughs> excuse me there's kind of um a group of people who kind of congregate around him i guess who is sort of attached to him and often do projects with him and um paul rose is is one of these people who's often done work with him and so a lot of the people who've come along to work on this digitizer tv show are sort of quite recognizable youtube personalities in their own right but they've come together to produce this show and uh at the time of recording uh they're just about to put out their third episode um which is um yeah so it's it's been going well so far so the the first episode had a few rough edges around there because it was obviously um rose trying to kind of find his feet with editing and sound mixing and stuff like that the second episode was a lot better and he assures everyone that sort of the third episode is very much the one where they've completely found their feet and and got used to it so the concept of the show is not your average uh, gaming youtuber type thing so it's it's not just like a short show with someone sitting talking about a specific game or a system or something like that it's it's designed to be structured like an old uh, magazine style tv show uh, and so it's got different segments to it it's got interviews it's got um sort of quizzes uh, gaming challenges and that sort of thing um and yeah it's just been a really entertaining watch so far so uh if you if you like british humor particularly sort of chaotic humor so rose is very much inspired by uh monty python and uh vic reeves and bob mortimer so if you like that kind of surreal humor you'll probably get a lot out of this show um so that is available on youtube from their uh from their channel which is just digitizer 2000 so if you search for that you'll find them and uh yeah just wanted to give that a quick plug because i know they've been working really hard on that um they've managed to get a whole bunch of new subscribers from that uh rose has been sort of really struggling to get this digitizer brand back up and running uh but he he seems to have sort of nailed what people wanted from it now so i just wanted to give that a shout out 
That's cool. That's really, yeah. really cool. Yeah, so that's been a really nice success story to watch recently. So, um, yeah, do take a look. All right, what have you been up to this week then? Well, I'm pleased to announce that I have had my first positive virtual reality experience. Say it ain't so. <laughs> it's it's so. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Astrobot Rescue Mission for the PS4 is some good shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really good. Um, finally got a chance to play it at a friend's house over the weekend, and well over the middle of the week, I guess, the long week, the beginning of the long weekend here in the States. Um, and it is great. Uh, and it is great because it is not a game that entirely depends on the fact that it's virtual reality to sell you on it. Mm -hmm. It is a well-constructed, fun, cute, quirky, Japanese-developed platformer game that just happens to be enhanced with VR. Yeah. Um, and it's wonderful. I, just absolutely wonderful. Uh, there was a real watershed moment for me where uh, I'm running around, I think it was in the second level, and there was a jump I had to make that was obscured by a wall. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, this this is dumb. I can't see where the platform was. And then I physically took a step forward and looked to my <laughs> right. Like, I actually looked around the wall. Like, put yeah. my head... Because like, I didn't even realize that uh, because of the PSVR with the camera and the light sensors built into the VR, there was some spatial awareness as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as soon as that happened, and then I looked down and almost threw up because <laughs> because I was in a valley, I was in a construction site, and I looked down from the crane. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, shit, this is it. This is VR. Like, this is, this is what VR is now. And yeah. uh, it was wonderful. And I, I almost had a moment of weakness and freaking bought a bundle this weekend. <laughs> I, restrained, I restrained myself because I, I said one game alone isn't worth the $200 investment. But it was, mm -hmm. uh, it was hard to resist because I really enjoy that game. And the, yeah. the music also deserves a special shout out because the music is really good in it too. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, this is a game I've had my eye on for a little while because uh, I've heard nothing negative about it. Everyone who's played it has absolutely loved it, so I'm going to try and pick that up at some point. It's actually quite inexpensive as well because I think they released it at like 25 quid here, so um, it's not like a full price game, um, but it sounds like it's a pretty substantial experience anyway. Um, my experience with uh, related matters is that they did a sort of prototype for what became AstroBot in uh, the Playroom VR. Right, which right, is, yeah. Which, it was so well received. I think that's why they made the full version. Yeah, exactly. So in the Playroom VR, this was a free download for PS4 um, that had a bunch of, of VR mini games in it. So there was there's there's things like um, sort of a a gun shooter where you, you're shooting blocks of uh, enemies that are coming towards you. But then there was uh, the Astrobot thing where you you control a robot with the DualShock, uh, but then you, you are effectively taking on the role of a giant robot that is following um this robot here and anyone watching on the tv can see your giant robot looking around as well as the small robot as well so it's uh, it could be quite a spectator sport as well um and yeah it, yeah I, I had pretty much the same experience as you sort of getting into a situation where you think well, well um i don't know how to do that and then and then having that realization that you can take a step forwards or lean to the side and look around stuff which are things that people have been trying to do in 3d platformers for years <laughs> if they're less experienced with it but uh, now you can actually do it now you can actually look over that ledge or around that corner and um and see what's there so yeah 
Um, I mean, virtual reality for a lot of people is is mostly associated with first person experiences, but it seems that a lot of the most well received stuff is taking this approach where rather than you being in the game, you are the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that seems that seems to be a really good use of VR for a lot of people. So there's been, there's been several um, platform games of this style that take on this idea. So there was that Moss game a while back that uh, seems to have been quite popular. Yeah, that's the bundle you can get in the states right now. Yes, it's you get Moss and Astrobot and the and the and the headset, which is a pretty oh, good pretty good bundle. Oh, that's cool. Do you get the the camera and the move controllers as well? You don't get the, the you don't get the move controllers. You get the camera, you get the headset, and then you get a physical copy of Astrobot and a digital code for Moss. Okay, that's cool. Um, there's another pack, a more expensive pack you can get in the states right now that has the Creed, the boxing game, and oh, that yeah. okay. and and that comes with a pair of move controllers because you need it. But yeah, yeah. The, the Moss and Astrobot's kind of the entry level bundle, and if like you're just wanting to play these platformers, you don't need the move controllers anyway. Yeah, so. the the move controllers are quite a sort of specific move uh, use case, to be honest, because there's there's very few games that actually need them. Um, but obviously, something like Creed, a big part of the experience of that will be the actual sort of physical movements and 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 punching with those but yeah there's a, there's a lot of games particularly these sort of more abstract ones where you're taking on the role of the camera rather than actually being in the game world where yeah you can you can use just a, a dual shock thing so yeah. anyone, anyone my experience the the more likely a game is to require the move controllers the less likely that's a game i want to play in the first place yeah exactly and i think that's a lot of people's ha- hang-ups with it so it's it, it's worth noting if you have been holding back on it because either the requirement for motion controls or the additional expense of getting move controllers because let's face it no one bought them for ps3 did they so um yeah so, so so rest assured that the in my experience a lot of vr games are perfectly playable with the dual shock and in some cases preferable so bear that in mind um, so yeah, I, I'm probably going to try and pick it up in the next few days at some point. So I will hopefully be able to either share some thoughts with you on this podcast or over on MoeGamer.net about that. Yeah, I'll be soon. very, very curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, I, I I bought a PS VR a while back, and I've I've had some fun with it, but there's the uh, sort of I haven't done much with it recently. So I kind of feel like I, I want to get some more games for it because there's there's a pretty decent library of games you can get for it now, and even better, a lot of them have physical releases as well over here in the UK. I don't know if they've done the same in the US, but a lot of VR games actually have um, disc based copies over here, which is really cool to see. So. Mm-hmm um so yeah i'm going to try and pick up a few of those i'd like to play resident evil 7 as uh, that's supposed to be excellent um the until dawn game is supposed to be quite good uh, i know it's it's pretty much just a rail shooter but as we'll probably talk about in the third segment of this podcast vr is a great um place to play rail shooters so anyway um have you played so, no heroes allowed no no i haven't that good uh i i hope so <laughs> it's oh, one of you it's one, it either <laughs> no it's one of the well i don't have the vr right it's one of the games i want to play um yeah because it's cute and the whole thing is that it's kind of unique in that you're playing the game on a tabletop you're like playing a tabletop game yeah. in the vr like you're looking down you're standing there around the table and there mm-hmm. the other characters are there with you and then yes. you and then you have to look down at the table to play it yeah like you're in yeah, a that's, room. That's the cool idea. That kind of that kind of reminds me of like a couple of old, really old games on um, like 16-bit stuff. So um, I don't remember. I think it was Bullfrog. Uh, so yeah, they oh, yeah. Re- 
So they they originally did uh, Populous, which is one of their their better known ones from that period. Sure, but they also did a game around the same period called uh, Powermonger. Oh, I'm familiar with I'm familiar with the name. Yeah, so it, it was the same. It. it was the same kind of perspective as Populous. So it was sort of isometric map that you could scroll around, and I think you could manipulate the terrain and stuff. But but rather than being a god, you were commanding armies in that. So it was more of a sort of real time strategy game. And a big thing that always stuck stuck with me about the presentation of that is that it. Uh, like this it was presented as you sort of standing over a table oh this is cool as hell yeah <laughs> i'm, go- <laughs> I'm googling so, it now yeah this is amazing so there, was, there was a there was a guy standing in the background who i think you could interact with and talk to and get advice from that side side of things so yeah that was that was one of bullfrog's games that's kind of mostly been forgotten these days but it was very well received back in the day um but yeah this um no what's it called no heroes allowed um, yeah yeah, that that concept sounds very similar to that, and that's that's quite appealing. So, and it's got cute anime vampire friends. Excellent, excellent. That's what we need. Marvelous. Right. Uh, anything else you've been playing? Uh, yeah, I recently acquired a copy of uh, Penny Punching Princess. Oh yes, tell me for about the this. Switch, which is delightful. <laughs> um, so, uh, Penny Punching Princess is kind of a uh, the best kind of game because it kind of defines genre. Mm-hmm. definitions it defies them it's it's uh, people have been calling it an rpg but it's not really an rpg because it's mission based it's yeah. just a it's just a menu and it's like you pick one mission and go to the next mission mm-hmm. um so it has a lot of characteristics that we associate kind of with an overhead action rpg like an e-style thing just like fast-paced action combat right. but um it's really just a series of challenges um, so each mission is a different map with a different arrangement of traps and enemies that you have to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get experience and skill points to level up your character and and, and you can build weapons and armor in like the screen in like the castle management part of it. But yeah. there, it's not like an RPG in the traditional sense. You're not like going on an adventure with a connected story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a series of challenges and then you're leveling up to meet them. Um, it's good. The, the action snappy. It's cute pixel art characters. Um, now, the the big uh, mechanical thing about the game is that in this world, money is everything, and that's like they keep beating you over the head with that in the story. Yeah. So um, the whole point is that as you beat up enemies, you can uh, you can rotate the right analog stick if you knock them out to give them the shakedown and get more money <laughs> and get more money out of them. Um, and then once you have your money. Um, you can press a button to bring up a calculator on screen and every enemy, every trap or enemy on the screen has a price tag. <laughs> so you can buy them or, bri- <laughs> or, or bribe them or whatever. Excellent. So like there's traps everywhere so that you might be in a room and then it's like, okay, the, the locks go down. It's like you have to clear this room and there might be like a buzz saw on the floor. And if you have 300 gold, you can buy the buzzsaw, and then it's <laughs> and then it's your buzzsaw, and so anything you buy gets mapped to a button on the controller. So then the idea is you want to instead of just engaging the enemies, um, if you press the attack and dodge button at the same time, you just do a two-handed push that throws enemies back. Mm-hmm. So you kind of want to position yourself so you do like a three-hit combo and that three-hit combo with the pushback, push them into the buzzsaw, then activate the buzzsaw. <laughs> then then you get so you get bonuses for chaining and killing enemies using the traps that you've purchased. 
So then after every enemy encounter, it's almost like Devil May Cry style. It, the enemy encounters are isolated, and once they're over, you get a rating. And then in each stage, there'll be like, I don't know, five enemy encounters, and you get an overall rating at the end of each stage. And that's what dictates how many score, how many skill points and stuff you get to develop your character based on your performance. So there's lots okay. of lots of emphasis to replay missions to get better scores once you get more used to the mechanics. Um, every enemy you buy has a, is a different attack. Yeah. So like you get like they're, they're they're little slime guys that are called onions, and that's kind of like one of like the first easiest bad guys. So like if you get a if you get an onion and you bribe an onion, he just does like a little chomp attack, right? And you get like <laughs> two you get like two of those if you bribe one onion. Yeah. So then the different enemies basically add new attacks to your repertoire for you to end or begin combos with. Um, so it's really cool. Uh, it's lots of fun. There's lots of experimenting. Because every time you encounter a new enemy, it's also a new move you could potentially do to yeah. try to try in your combos. Um, the system itself keeps track of which enemies, how many of each enemy you've bribed. So then those also become the materials with which you craft. Oh, okay. So the idea is every time you bribe an enemy, it becomes a citizen for your kingdom. Yeah. So when you go to the armor crafting section of the game, it'll say like, Oh, to craft this armor, you need to have as citizens three skeletons, two onions, and three lesser dragons. Hmm. So there's also a collection element where you have to be conscious of uh, to, that you're, you're hunting those enemies and bribing them to become citizens of your kingdom so that you can also craft different armors. Every armor has a different special attack. So then, besides modifying your stats, it also expands or modifies your repertoire of moves as well. Yeah. So it's really just a kind of a character-building action game with a action RPG overhead style of view and gameplay. But it's definitely just all about the action and the combos and orchestrating these kind of trap-based um, yeah. attacks and stuff. Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting blend of stuff. So like, I'm getting vibes of all sorts of stuff from what you're describing there. So I'm getting a, a bit of half-minute hero and a bit of mm -hmm. uh, dis deception yes. and a bit of, um, yeah, like you say, sort of traditional action RPGs and that kind of thing. That sounds really fun, actually. Yeah, I'm just liking it because it's not like anything I've played in a long time. It's a really unique game, and, and I don't get to say that often. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so different. <laughs> It sounds like it sounds like a good handheld game as well, a good one to sort of play a mission on your lunch break or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect for that. It's perfect yeah. for that. And cool. that right. that game that's coming out that uh, that NIS is bringing out, Princess. Uh, what is it? The one where you develop the four princesses or whatever. Oh, Princess Guide, isn't it? Yeah, it's clearly yeah. it's clearly a sequel to this. Oh, okay. Like if yeah. you it, it's clearly the same development team, the same yeah. engine, the same pixel art style. Every it, it's if you watch footage of Penny Punching Princess and watch footage of Princess Guide, it's clear that this is supposed to be a um, either a spiritual successor or just a title from the same development team. But there's yeah. so much common DNA. Like, so I'm I'm I wasn't initially interested in this Princess Guide, but. Since I watched footage after playing Penny Punching Princess, now I'm like, okay, sign me up for number two. <laughs> yeah, this they released a few games around that period um, that I, I'm very interested in all of them, but I haven't got around to picking any of them up yet. So Penny Punching Princess was one. Um, there was that um, what's it called, the longest five minutes as well. That I oh like yeah, to try. yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's a really, really interesting cool. game. Yeah, so that's that's the one where you start the final boss, but the the main character forgets everything that got him there. So you then go through a series of flashbacks of 
what happened to bring him to that point and then sort of the way you you play through those flashbacks affects how that final encounter comes out so yeah i'm interested to try that one at some point there was another one as well that i've forgotten what it was there were like, i want to say there were like three games they released around that same period that all seemed quite experimental and interesting but um uh, that birthdays the switch version of that birthdays that kind of like oh yes. world building god game yeah yeah so yeah some to some to check out at some point in the near future hopefully along with all of the other stuff i need to check out as well yeah all the video games all of the games yes all right anything else you've been up to uh that's the only thing really substantial um mm -hmm. i did hook up the old ps2 to play the original samurai warriors for a bit but uh you're the uh, you're the warriors guy right now so <laughs> so i won't uh I won't allow. There's not too much I can be said uh, say about the original Samurai Warriors that hasn't been said everywhere yeah. else. It's, but it's a yeah. it's it's a good game. Yeah. So all right for for me then there's I mean there's um I've been playing various things for my video series. The, the things that have been taking up most of my time uh, have been uh, Warriors of Rochi, which I, I feel like I've got a real sort of bead on what it's all about now. Um, so I'll, I'll talk a bit about that for, for, for now to begin with. Um, so Warriors of Rochi, I have now finished the Samurai campaign in that. Uh, so the, fir the first of the campaigns. And I, I don't know what their intention was with, with how you're supposed to play through that. But it seems like if you, if you play through one of these campaigns um, and pay attention to the mechanics, you will then make all of the other ones a bit easier for yourself. Hmm. Yeah, that makes um, sense. So, um, although each of the campaigns, uh, you basically start with a fresh stock of characters who all start at level one. Um, by the time you finish one of the campaigns, if you've been paying attention to your character development, you should have a whole bunch of these passive abilities that apply to your whole team, regardless of what characters are in it as well. So, um, for example, now I've finished the Samurai campaign, I've got um, the Acclaim ability up to level about six or seven, I think, which means that experience gain is considerably increased from what it is normally. So characters in these subsequent campaigns will then level up a lot quicker. Um, I've got buffs to their base defense and life points and so on. So they'll be stronger to begin with even at level one um and so yeah it's, it's it's been a pleasure to start a new campaign with these fresh characters and have them uh be not completely useless from the outset <laughs> um so i i'm now working on the the woo campaign uh, so one of the three kingdoms campaigns in that so in that one you start with um sunsei and tokugawa and uh hanzo hattori uh, because the, the thing with Warriors of Rochi is that although it splits it up by the various kingdoms, uh, part of the concept of the game is that everyone's got all jumbled up in the first place anyway. So in the Wu campaign, there's some samurai characters. Uh, there's points in the Wu campaign where certain Wu fighters are fighting other Wu fighters. And it, it's all designed to sort of mix things up and put characters in matchups that you, you wouldn't normally be possible in the standard Dynasty Warriors and uh, Samurai Warriors settings. Um, so there's some interesting stuff going on there. There's some really fun characters in Wu. Um, Sunsei is a lot of fun with his, his Tonfa. So he's technically a power character in uh, Warriors Orochi Parlance, but he's got quite sort of agile attacks. Uh, Ran Maru, who I know you've been having fun with in Samurai Warriors, is a lot of fun. So um, um, he's got um, sort of this this long, uh, what's it called? A uh, Nodachi, Nodachi sword? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's got a, a really wide sweeping arc on it and a lot of fun. Um, I've also discovered that uh, Ran Maru is responsible for making a lot of people very confused because... Uh, <laughs> 
because he is voiced by uh, what's her name Tara Tara Platt is it um, I, I just I just know her as Mitsuru from Persona mm-hmm. um, but yeah he is voiced by Tara Platt um, and looks very much like a pretty girl uh, but is apparently a boy so you know deal with it <laughs> um so yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with that. Uh, if you want to see me struggle through uh, the various campaigns and that, I, I am doing videos on that every Wednesday at the moment uh, and trying to make my way through all of Warriors Orochi. Because I've never really finished a Warriors game, so I'm going to do my best to actually finish Warriors Orochi eventually. But we'll see how that goes. Um, the other thing I've been playing is, um, uh, because my cover game is continuing on the Project Zero Fatal Frame series, uh, I am now up to the final instalment, uh, which is Maiden of Blackwater on Wii U. Uh, which uh, I know got a, got a fairly mixed reception when it was released, but it's now also one of the sort of rarest and most expensive Wii U games out there. So it, it's one that a lot of people have, have become interested in again. And yeah, this this is a really cool game. Um, while the the sort of two Wii games in the series, uh, which was four and the remake of two, kind of mixed things up a bit by making it the over the shoulder perspective instead of the fixed camera angles. Um, this this one again feels like a bit of a shake up of how it does things. So um, it keeps the uh, the over the shoulder perspective from the previous two, um, but. Uh, because you're using the gamepad as your camera uh, in this one, um, the uh, they've kind of upped the pace of the combat a bit even more than they had done in uh, Project Zero Four. And so um, there's uh, there's several different playable characters. I've got access to two of them at the moment. I think there's three in total. The first one handles relatively um, traditionally for the series in that you sort of point and shoot and. Uh, like in the remake of Project Zero 2 for Wii, uh, after each shot you have to wait for your film to reload. And that's one of the things you can upgrade on your camera. Different types of film reload at different speeds as well. So uh, sometimes it's in your interest in using maybe a less powerful form of film that can reload a bit quicker so you can fire off shots a bit more quickly. They've kind of revamped the way it does uh, how much damage you do though. Because in most of the previous Project Zero games, uh, damage is determined by how long you point at a ghost before you fire off your shot. Uh, But in this one, it's to do with how many things you've got in frame at once. Oh, okay. Um, And and so alongside that, they've introduced a system where when you do damage to a ghost, it sort of makes bits of spirit break off from them and become these sort of discrete things that float around them. And if you don't take a photo of those bits, they will then get reabsorbed back into the ghost, so they'll get some health back. Uh, But at the same time, if you take a photograph of the ghost and these bits that are floating around, your shot will be more powerful because there's more things in frame at the time you shoot them. So there's a much greater emphasis on sort of almost composing your shots carefully to do the most damage. Uh, which is yeah a really interesting way of doing things and also alongside that it, it makes a sort of more creative use of the camera to solve puzzles and things as well so um previous project zero games had things where like you come across a locked door and you go oh i don't know where the key is for this and you take a photo of the lock and it would then show you a glimpse of where the key is um in this one it does the same thing to a certain extent but again there's a a stronger focus on on composition stuff so things leave psychic impressions in this and in order to sort of resolve that psychic impression you have to point both point the camera at the the thing where this impression is and also tilt it to the right angle and stuff to make it appear and so there's there's it's it's not sort of overusing motion controls or anything, but it is making use of the fact that the gamepad has got this really good gyroscopic sensor in it to sure um, to sort of frame things carefully and so on. There's uh, there's puzzles that have to be solved by um, 
you you will get a photograph of something and you then have to find that location and recreate that photograph as well which is cool uh, so sort of you, you you'll see a shot of a locale you might recognize from a particular angle you then need to go there and take a photograph from that same angle to trigger something happening and so on so yeah there's some re- some really cool and creative use of the gamepad in there it's uh it's it's a game that that in its current form could only work on wii u that's cool i think I, it's uh you know i like to hear that i like to hear yeah. about a game that's pretty much only playable on, on yeah. the wii u yeah, definitely. And it's not gimmicky and forced, and it doesn't feel wrong. No. It's, it's a natural extension of something you would want in that game, based on yes. the game setting. Yeah, it, it works really well. It makes sense. Uh, so, so sort of like the very concept of Project Zero is holding up a camera and looking at things. So sort of holding up the, the gamepad to do that, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And and just the, the presentation of it is beautiful as well. It's like, if, if anyone sort of thought the Wii U was underpowered, just take a look at this game. It's absolutely beautifully presented. So it's got these gorgeous character models. Um, there's a strong emphasis on um, sort of getting wet in this as well. <coughs> so sort of it's sort of how 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 wet you are how much you've been um covered in rain and water and stuff is actually a game mechanic so sort of the more wet you are the more likely you are to attract ghosts to yourself and sort of that's reflected through the graphics and stuff as well so you can actually see sort of characters clothes clinging to them when they've been out in the rain for a long time and that sort of thing and that's not just for show it's actually a sort of visual depiction of how vulnerable you are mm-hmm. um the sound is really good as well i mean that's been a running pattern for the series as a whole but the sound in this is wonderful um it really nails um the feeling of loneliness as well which i think is sort of sort of a core theme of it uh, which is kind of interesting because it's the project zero game that has got the most speaking characters in it um that i've seen so there's uh, most of the Project Zero games, there might be some sort of initial cutscenes where you're talking to people, but then for the rest of the game, you might only speak to one or two people for the for the entire duration, and the rest of it you're by yourself. In this one, there's a lot more scenes where people are actually interacting with each other and doing things together. But I think for me, it's it's probably nailed this this sort of emotional feeling of loneliness better than anything else, and a lot of that is to do with the sound. Oh, um, sure. So I mean. This this is something that will obviously vary for different people, but sort of I associate the feeling of loneliness with a room that is completely silent, but uh, aside from like the ticking of a clock or something like that. And one of the areas that you, you you revisit most frequently in this game is this this shop where one of the main characters and um, her sort of mentor or her guardian um, live. And early on in the game, her guardian disappears. So, like a big a big part of the story is discovering what happened to her and whether she's still alive and that sort of thing. And anytime you go back to this shop and you're by yourself, it's completely silent. But the the main room, because it's it's an antique shop that's been converted into a cafe, there's these clocks all over the place. So depending on where you stand, you'll hear these different ticking noises. So there's like a big grandfather clock that does this sort of big pendulum sounds. There's sort of smaller clocks in different places that will make different ticking sounds and. It, it just sort of really gets to you after a while. It's not not in like a bad or an annoying way or anything, but it it just really drives home that feeling of yeah, this character is by themselves now and they're going to have to do things for themselves. So yeah, I've been very impressed with that so far. Uh, I'm probably about uh, a third of the way through it at the time of recording, so hopefully I'll be able to to write something about it by the end of next week, uh, and then that will be the entire Project Zero series done. Which um, yeah, it's, it's it's taken two months for me to get through the whole lot, but uh, I'm very glad I have because it's been a, a real experience. So um, check them out if you want some some good horror, basically. Mm-hmm. 
and that's pretty much all I've been up to lately, apart from the stuff that is appearing regularly on my video channel. Uh, I've been, uh, I've kind of taking a break from Auto Modelista for the Sunday Driving series now because I kind of hit a wall in terms of progression, and I'm not sure how to get past that. So, uh, by the time you listen to this, I will have started the uh, a new series on there of arcade races, and I think I'm going to do Outrun Two S um, Coast to Coast on that for a few weeks. Oh, fun! Which is a, a game that I absolutely love, so I'm looking forward to spending some more time with that. Um, and then uh, my new game plus series on Fridays, I'm playing through the original Project Zero's post game. At the time of recording, I've just finished the main mission mode in that, and I'm going to do another run through the main story of that on the nightmare difficulty with uh, like the fully upgraded camera and stuff that you can carry across onto that. So uh, watch out for that on Fridays. All right, uh, so that's pretty much everything I've been up to for the minute. So let's take a short break, and then we'll get into our main topic for today, which is light gun shooters. So we'll see you in a moment. Welcome back. For our main topic today, we decided we wanted to talk about light gun games. Um, I don't think there was a particular trigger for wanting to talk about light gun games. It's just something we both like. Um, yeah, well, I was excited to play them. I was excited to try them on my big TV because I got a new TV. And I, ah, and, yes. and, I, and I was like, I can't wait to play light gun shooters on this thing because the people are going to be like <laughs> the size of actual people. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I mean, light gun games are an interesting thing to talk about anyway, because they, they are actually one of the oldest types of, um, I almost don't want to say video game, because they kind of predate video games to a certain extent. So, sure, shooting galleries. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I did a bit of research into this when back when I covered uh, Galgun Double Piece in 2016, so I got a fairly extensive article on the history of this sort of thing, but sort of... The key points are that they've been around since about sort of the 1930s or so, um, which uh, they were sort of electromechanical things then, but they still used what we'd call a light gun. Um, so they were they were a, a gun-shaped thing that would, in that case, fire out a beam of light, uh, and then there would be sensors that would detect when that beam of light was hitting them, um, but they would be actual physical objects at that time. So sort of between about the sort of 1930s and 1960s, um, both Sega and Nintendo were very much competing for um, sort of who could do the best, coolest, most physical things at the time. So there's um, things like Sega had a really cool uh, periscope game where you look through a submarine's periscope and you're firing at ships uh, using light gun technology um, and so on. So they then came home in the 70s with the original Magnavox Odyssey so not the Magnavox Odyssey 2 which I've been writing about recently but the the, the predecessor to that which is one of the first um, commercially available home consoles um, that had an optional um, rifle that came with it and that came with I think four games and because the Magnavox Odyssey 1 was such a primitive device uh, it could display three dots and one vertical line on screen at once um, <laughs> uh, so, so most of its games were based around putting overlays on your television and then wherever the dots appeared and the line appeared that would sort of make things light up in these overlays and so on and you'd then shoot those um, and the way light guns worked at the time they kind of went the opposite uh, route from how 
um, how those initial electromechanical games work. So rather than the gun firing out a beam of light and the sensor being on the thing you were shooting at, it was then the other way round by this point. So the gun had the sensor in it, and when you pulled the trigger on the gun, it would trigger like a flash of lights or blanking out the screen on the television, uh, and that would then allow the gun to know where it was pointed, basically. Now, this is um, the the way this worked is the main reason that earlier light gun games don't work on modern televisions, because part of this technology was based on the way that older televisions, old CRTs, produced their image, sort of a dot at a time, a line at a time on the screen. Um, and modern televisions don't work in that way. So that means that even up until sort of PS1, PS2 era, uh, with things like Namco's GunCon uh, device, they don't work on a modern television just because the it doesn't know where you're pointing at the screen. And so we kind of... Um, the genre kind of died out for a little bit until we had some alternative solutions in place. So arcade games realised that we could use IR sensors instead. Uh, and then when we got uh, the Wii in the home, that was using IR sensors. And so uh, devices like the Wii Remote and the optional zapper attachment for that, that then meant that we could bring that back in there. And that's what I sort of think as the second era of light gun games. Um, and then we, we mentioned a little bit earlier that um, virtual reality's use of motion controls and physically aiming things and the fact it can detect where you are in 3D space, that's kind of brought about another resurgence of the genre. So it's something that's kind of ebbed and flowed as technology has changed over the years, but it's something that people have always found quite appealing, I think. So there's your, your brief sort of potted history lesson of that. So... <laughs> <laughs> um so i mean what was what was your earliest experience with a light gun game do you reckon was it duck hunt or was it something something else you know i, I think i would even trace it back to like physical toys i had as a okay. kid yeah so like it wasn't a light gun but like i used to have this thing where it was like a big plastic box with a plastic screen on it and um, it had BBs in it, right? And the and then uh, the, the the BBs would fall down an incline to the front, and it would basically there was a screen there, the plastic a clear plastic screen, and then you had a gun, and the gun had a magnet on the tip of it. Okay. And so you would touch the gun, the tip of the gun, to one of the BBs, and then drag them up the screen, and then there was targets in the back okay. of this and targets in the back of this box and you'd pull the trigger on the gun and it would do something with the magnet and it would sh it would sh it would fling the bb right from the magnet and uh like that was one of my kind of earliest experiences with a with a shooting gallery kind of play experience mm -hmm. so like i've always ever since i was a kid like that was really formative to me like i would sit with that thing for hours and it was stupid right there was like four little <laughs> targets but like it was just so fascinating to me um and so then I think from there would, would definitely be Duck Hunt. And mm -hmm. uh, and I was actually the weird kid because I liked the clay shooting more than Duck Hunt. Yeah. Like the clay shooting minigame, I always really preferred to Duck Hunt as a kid on the Nintendo. Mm -hmm. um, but just aside from that, like I used to just love it in the, in the arcades. Yes. Yeah. I mean, to me... Like, of course, light gun games have been successful in the home, but, like, most of my notes I have for things to talk about today are kind of related to um, the arcade and how... Yeah. And our light gun games that were specifically, like, arcade-specific experiences that, like, never mm -hmm. quite were able to translate well to the home. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think what my earliest experience would have been because I, I played Duck Hunt for the first time quite late. Oh, okay. Um, but um, I, I was definitely familiar with Duck Hunt, and one of the things I recall with uh, Duck Hunt in particular was uh, my earliest experience with it weren't all that positive because I I couldn't really get my head around aiming. Mm. Like I didn't know I I didn't know how you could aim accurately, and so like the first few times I played Duck Hunt, I remember really struggling with it and just not being able to hit anything. Um, until I, I, I eventually sort of adopted a, an almost like sniper-like posture with the zapper in that I was holding it right up against my eye and looking down it and pointing at things that way. Sure. And I had way, I had way more success doing it that way um, than actually just sort of pointing the thing at the screen. Um, so I, I don't know if that was, <laughs> that was sort of an accepted way to play Duck Hunt at the time, but that's certainly what I, um, I sort of associate with that. But, um... I I was familiar with light gun games quite early on. So like the old Atari systems, um, the the sort of last model of the Atari 8-bit, which was the Atari XE game system, the XE GS. Um, this was uh, this came out after the 16-bit Atari ST came out, but it was sort of Atari's last ditch attempt to um, to do something with the 8-bit range uh, and kind of follow the success of the 2600. And it, it failed because Atari of that era were complete idiots. But, um, yeah, it was it was a bold attempt, and it's something that collectors very much like these days. So the XEGS was... It was basically a 65XE. So it was um, Atari's last model of 8-bit computer, modelled kind of in the same way as the ST with the grey plastic and the sort of vented top. So it was a, it was a nice-looking thing, but it was primarily designed as a games console rather than the computer. And so it had a detachable keyboard, uh, so you could use it just as a standalone games console if you wanted it. It just had a, a unit with a cartridge slot and um, action buttons, and you could just plug any old uh, controller into it. Um, but one of the things that came with was a light gun, and I think that was that was one of the times that I was most familiar with it. We never had an XEGS ourselves, but I was familiar with the fact that light guns existed, um, and there were sort of typing listings from magazines and things that that kind of taught you how to um, tell the computer to read information from that light gun, how to how to pull in that information about where it was pointing, whether you were pulling the trigger, and that sort of thing. So. That's sort of my earliest memory of it, is sort of having a vague, a very vague understanding of the technology behind it and how uh, how the computer would communicate with it, but never actually having one. The first light gun I would have had for myself was the, the gun con for the PlayStation, okay. um, which uh, me and my friends, we, we kind of all got around the same time. It was about the time, I think, Time Crisis released. Okay, sure. Uh, and so Time Crisis was, was a game that was very popular among me and my group of friends for a little while. Um time crisis uh was yeah so it was namco wasn't it i think yes um gun so, con as a whole was just like namco's baby yes um so time crisis was uh one of those games that um i kind of had a, a bit of a tough time kind of understanding at the time in terms of whether it was worth the money because it was it was very much an arcade game Mm -hmm. um in terms of design and structure in that you could play through the whole thing in about 20 minutes and this was also a period when arcade ports didn't come with a lot of extra content as they tend to do these days and so you bought a copy of time crisis in the gun con for ps1 and you basically had a 20 minute game but it was it was a very replayable and enjoyable 20 minute game but it was still a 20 minute game and that was something that um i could 
I kind of wasn't sure how to feel about it at the time, but I, I enjoyed the experience of it and I enjoyed the physicality of using the gun con. Um, we also had a lot of fun uh, when we discovered that if you switch the in-game language to German, it changes all the speech into German as well. So, um, Time Crisis in German is an infinitely superior experience to the uh, to the English version, so I, I <laughs> highly most... recommend it. That sounds very entertaining. Aufladen! <laughs> Uh, I've just had a flashback of major proportions regarding early light gun experiences. Did you guys have the Action Max in the UK? I know the name, but I can't, I can't think what it is, so I'm not sure we actually had it or if I'm just familiar with it. So the Action Max was like this weird, kind of half-hearted kind of console <laughs> that hooked up to your VCR. So you, it was. Oh no it, no no no! Yes yes, was, I do remember it that. It was VHS tapes, and you had this little console, and it was just exclusively light gun games. It was an, it was a light gun console, like the end. Yes. And and you had to hook up this terrible giant like flashing red light to your yes. television. Oh god, yes, I remember this. And so it was just light gun games, and it was the same every time. Like there was yeah. no there was no, you know. Well, you were, you were you were playing a videotape, weren't you? Because so you were, yeah, because no you were playing, change. yeah, you were playing a VHS. <laughs> I just remember I had a friend who had it, and he had the rescue of Pops Ghostly, <laughs> and, and which was like puppets, and you were like blasting these like puppet ghosts in like a haunted mansion, and uh, I just that freaking action max man. Well, this this would have been a similar time to um, arcade games that were doing a similar kind of thing, but with Laserdisc. Yeah, yeah. So, um, if you think of, like, Mad Dog McCree was probably mm -hmm, the most well-known of them. You know yeah. Um, Mad Dog McCree is, is not a game I ever actually saw in the wild, I don't think, but I, I remember vividly seeing it on the Games Master television show, which was, like, our big gaming TV show in sort of the, the, the early to mid-90s. And that's a, that's a big sort of thing that Digitizer that I mentioned earlier was sort of trying to tap into at the same time. So uh, Games Master had um, sort of specific gaming challenges. So they, they'd get kids in and they'd do it like a game show. So people would compete to get the best score on something. And one of the early episodes I really remember seeing was uh, people playing Mad Dog McCree. And like being initially hit with the fact that, wow, this is so amazing. It looks real because it's video. Uh, and then sort of... It's sort of taking the time to to step back and analyze it and think oh, it's not not really that good. <laughs> no, it's really it's really not that good. Yeah, um, this is this is a slight tangent, but I'll say it anyway. That that thing you mentioned there, there was also a related thing called Video Driver. Oh, uh, I I don't know if you you had that in the states, but it was it was a very similar idea. So, um, but instead of light gun games, it was a driving game that you played on VHS. Oh, <laughs> how would that um, even work? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, you had to hook up this enormous, weird plastic frame to your TV, uh, and part of this plastic frame, um, there is a like a platform across the bottom, and on this platform on the bottom, uh, you put a toy car, um, and the toy car had some sort of light sensor in it, uh, and it was also motorized, so you had to plug it in, um, and you had a little steering wheel controller console with a, a gear shift and stuff like that and steering on the console there would move this toy car from side to side holy shit yeah uh, <laughs> and so and so you'd you'd play the video uh and you were supposed to sort of move this car to somewhere where it wasn't bumping into things on the screen and so like you'd, you'd lose points that appeared on the mechanical mile counter on the console um if you if you 
crashed into something but the because it was just running off a vhs cassette and it had no sort of means of actually sort of processing whether you were actually colliding with something or not and it was just doing this through a light sensor it was absolute garbage to play but it was the technology was so cool because it was just all these cool bits of plastic that you hooked onto your tv and um but yeah i mean like the sort of video based shooting games it was it was not good to play but it was it was quite an experience it just sega uh, just made a, this I think, it, I think it was published by Action GT over here. I don't remember seeing the Sega name on it anywhere. But I'm looking uh, at a box with Sega logo, with a Sega logo <laughs> on it. Oh, wow. Yeah, De definitely um, definitely published by Action GT over here. But, uh, yeah, so evidently uh, Sega got involved with it in the North American release, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Tyco, which was a toy manufacturer. <coughs> in the U.S., at least, it was Tyco, which is a toy manufacturer, and, and then Sega. Yeah. But Maybe yeah, they just put uh, their name on it or got involved in it. I don't know. Maybe. But. Yeah. No, I just remember it being terrible but cool. Um, it was like one of those things that was sort of always in the Christmas catalogs and so on. And uh, like everyone wanted one. And then when they got it, they realized that, you know, computer games are better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So um, back to sort of uh, gun con era. So, so Time Crisis was cool. But I think um, probably the light gun I played the most um in this period would have been point blank uh, as god intended oh point blank is such a good game yeah and it really bums me out that there's no really good way to play it now on modern televisions so like if i want to play point blank now i would need to use my uh my the only crt i've got in my house now which is very small which is actually the the tv i used to play it on uh when i played it a whole bunch uh but somehow it just doesn't it doesn't seem quite as satisfying now right um but yeah, Point Blank, if you're unfamiliar, that was another Namco game. Um, it was an arcade game again, uh, but it was it was set up in such a way that it was it was a lot more substantial than Time Crisis was. So it was a bunch of mini games, wasn't it, basically? Um, in that uh, you, you'd play one or two players, and it would set you specific objectives, and then it would give you quite a tight time limit to accomplish that objective by shooting things on the screen. And it wasn't just action-based things. There were like puzzles and stuff in there as well. And if I remember correctly, it would sort of randomize which uh, which stages you got each time you played. So you'd have a, a slightly different experience each time. You could play it single player. You could play it with two people. Um, the PlayStation version had like party modes and stuff as well. And yeah, I just remember spending a lot of time playing that game on PlayStation uh, when, I, when I first moved to university. It was a good sort of ice-breaking game. Mm-hmm. Because light gun games are so sort of fundamentally understandable to even people who've never picked up a controller before. Um, it was, yeah, it was a game that people would, would often come into my room and we'd play. And I, I, I got to know a lot of my uh, a lot of my flatmates in my first year at university by, by playing Point Blank with them. So, yeah, very fond memories of that one indeed. Did you uh, play the DS version? I didn't, know. Is that any good? I didn't play it either. I was just curious if you had. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that... I mean, the, the actual sort of fundamental gameplay doesn't necessarily need the gun, but I think part of the appeal is just that physical physical fact of pointing something at the screen. Oh, and absolutely. That kind of thing. Um, I, I, I have quite fond memories of that. I have slightly less fond memories of my player two gun because I did get two guns eventually. Mm. My, my my second one, because, because gun cons were, were relatively expensive because they were sort of officially licensed products, my player two gun, I got a, a sort of third-party one. Mm. that was that was designed to look like a it was designed to look like a real gun um yeah, so it had sort of like this sort of fake wood handle and stuff and it looked like um, a, a, a sort of pistol um 
it, it had what it called force feedback, which actually meant it did this slightly dull vibrating every time you pulled the trigger, regardless, oh. regardless of whether the the game was making use of um, like DualShock or anything like that. It was it was just literally you pulled the trigger and it would turn on a motor in the gun, uh, <laughs> and that was force feedback. Um, it was also very inaccurate, so we used to fight over who got to be player two, and uh, as all good people should. But um, yeah. So I have the Cadillac of third-party guns, and if you are if you are not familiar with the Innovation Jolt gun, <laughs> this is what I had. Uh, the Innovation Jolt gun was designed to be as close to arcade Time Crisis gun as possible. Oh, okay. So you you actually plugged it in just like a regular gun con, and then you had to plug it into power. It had a power adapter, oh, and wow. it, and it actually had the shell ejecting. Like the, oh, the, wow. the the thing would actually shoot back on a motor, just like the <laughs> just like GunCon in the arcade, and it had the pedal. Oh wow, that's awesome! So it was like proper arcade time crisis, and that that was what I had for the PS One for GunCon. I never had an official one until the PS Two, but oh, okay. But that was a GunCon. It worked as a GunCon, but it had yeah. it actually had that shell ejecting the shell from the chamber, like slide back action. I'm not a gun guy. I don't know what the exact name for that is, but, <laughs> but it, it was sweet as hell. And if like you like walked in while I was using it, it was just like the click, click, click. Like, it, was, <laughs> it was aw, it was awesome. But it also had wires out the wazoo's right it's like there was the controller wire into the system a power cord so you had to be close to an outlet and then yeah. the, and then the cable for the pedal so i'm like standing there and it's like massive cables well the the gun con as well didn't you have you had to plug it into the video output on the playstation as well didn't you yes if i remember correctly so so there was that as well so yeah that was would have been a real mess um <laughs> but yeah that sounds amazing um yeah so uh, I didn't. I didn't play many uh, light gun games when we get forward into the PS2 era. I, I had a friend who had the, um, the, 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 I think it was the second gun con, wasn't it? The the like the blue USB one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so I played that a bit, but that, but at that period, I, I kind of sort of uh, I kind of fell off the the light gun thing a bit because it was at an era where I, mean, I wrote I wrote about this the other day when I was writing about Ghost Squad which believe me we will be talking about in a moment um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah what one of the one of the things is that as um, as as sort of home consumers got a bit more comfortable with the idea of uh, computer and console games being more substantial experiences than just arcade games a lot of people kind of developed that expectation and i know i certainly remember in the early 2000s in particular not wanting to buy games that were arcade ports because i thought that um i sort of wanted I wanted quote better from my my console games if you like mm-hmm. so I, yeah, I more I, substantial I, experiences yeah I, I wanted these more substantial experiences and I kind of didn't value these arcade experiences as much so I, I never bought myself a gun con two for PlayStation two so I, I didn't really play a lot of um, that era of light gun games but I know in our sort of planning for this you've you've mentioned a few so um, yeah I love I love PS two gun con games yeah. So what are some highlights? Um, uh, well, what was nice about the PS2 GunCon era is that Sega and Namco got buddy buddy, mm-hmm. so they they made some games together oh. that were really cool. Um, most specifically, I'm talking Vampire Night. Okay, which is, if you're a Castlevania geek like me is a lot of fun because it's basically <laughs> just House of the Dead with vampires instead of zombies. <laughs> so like different vampires are coming at you and you can blast their heads off and it's a, it's a good time because it has that spooky gothic 
kind of Japanese gothic setting, which is really, yeah. really cool. I um, mean, most of these games aren't really anything special mechanically. Mm-hmm. They're they're just cool, you know. <laughs> they're just you yeah. know gun con, gun con games in different settings. So like, specifically, like I have and love Vampire Night. I also have Ninja Assault. Mm-hmm. Which is the same thing. It's just uh, <laughs> so like you're a ninja and your gun shoots your gun shoots the little shurikens out and you're yes. fighting like ninjas and samurais and stuff in like a in like big Japanese ca- palaces and stuff, which is really mm-hmm. cool. Um, yeah, it was just fun. Um, there was also one by Capcom that was set in the Dino Crisis universe. Oh yeah, um, and I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. Mm. Didn't they? They did. Um, they did at least one Resident Evil one around that period as well, didn't they? Or was yes, that they PS1 did. Era? Yeah, um, they did. Resident because Evil that Gun Survivor wasn't it, or something? Or Dead Aim? I think it was called in some yeah, places. Yeah, and I think that series was then continued on the Wii. Yes, yes, they did. They did the Resident Evil Chronicles games, which I, I haven't played yet, but I did pick up a few weeks back. So I will be having a look at those at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there was lots of cool stuff. Dino. Dino Survivor? Oh, yes. Yes, that sounds familiar. Mm. Yeah, so there was a pack you could... Oh, no, Dino. it was Dino Survivor in Japan because it was a spinoff of Resident Evil Survivor. Right. In, yes. the, in the US, it was Dino Stalker. I don't know if you guys <laughs> okay. got it or not in here. I, 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 I definitely recognize the name Dino Survivor, so yeah, I'm not sure if that came here or not, but I've, I'm familiar with it, definitely. Yeah, so that's cool. Um... Yeah, like I said, I love I love these games. Oh. Mm. Yeah, so that's that's the sort of era of it that I kind of missed out on a bit. I, I kind of missed out on it in the in the immediately preceding Dreamcast era as well, because mm. again, again, I, I know House of the Dead on Dreamcast is sort of very well regarded and that sort of thing, but I I didn't play that. I think the only sort of real I don't know. Dreamcast was kind of an interesting period because a lot of its best games very much were arcade games. So for sure. Of, if you think of stuff like Crazy Taxi and and that kind of thing, but I I just kind of I just kind of had this hesitation at, at buying anything that required an accessory. Yeah. Well, apart from apart from Sega bass fishing for some reason, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> it was weird you know, in the West anyway because for some reason with like school shootings and all that shit like sega decided that they weren't going to release the first party gun in in the uh, west okay. so like you had to buy a third party gun to, yeah. to, even, to even play the dreamcast light gun games right um and there wasn't really much it was just like i i can't think of any besides house of the dead and a death crimson ox mm. I, I i can't think of any other gun con uh, any other gun light gun games for the dreamcast besides those two i'm sure they exist i just can't yeah. think of them yeah and so, I mean, I guess after that we get into our our sort of new era of light gun games, which is the Wii. Yeah. And um, so, obviously, the the Wii was released in this sort of transitional period between SD and HD. And so, its new way of doing things uh, was something that would work on either standard definition televisions and HD televisions, which kind of opened things up to people who might not have revisited this idea for a while. So, sort of one of the the key characteristics of the Wii Remote is, is its pointer functionality. So you can you can point at the screen, it can accurately sort of show where you are. And it doesn't have quite the same feel as a light gun, um, but it's it's a similar it's a similar feeling, but it's not it's not the same. It doesn't have quite the same physicality about it. I don't know what's what's really different about it because you're effectively yeah. doing the same thing. But it's, it does it's never, feel different though. 
Yeah. I, I haven't... Have you ever tried using the, the Wii Zapper? Yeah, oh yeah, I have one. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, I, I, I'd like to pick up one of those because I've got a, f a couple of games that support it, like Link's Crossbow Training and stuff. So mm -hmm. um, I, I would like to pick one up at some point. And I can imagine that would help to a certain degree with, with this feeling. I think it's just the fact that it's, it's just the shape, I think. It, it just doesn't feel like you've got a gun in your hand. It just feels like you've got a TV remote with a trigger, which is what it yeah. is, basically. Yeah, but, no, I've never played Ghost Squad without the zapper. I don't even know. Okay, yeah. I, I also I, I mean, have... Have you ever played with the GunCon 3 on the PS3? No, actually. Yeah, see, that's a that's like a tragedy story, because I think only Time Crisis 4 works with it, because there was no other GunCon game that worked with it. Because when yeah. Time, Time Crisis 4 came out, I bought it because I was cause I was sad for the PS3. Like I was like, oh, light gun games are dead now. Yeah. And then when Time Crisis 3 came out, I'm sorry, Time Crisis 4 came out, I like lost my mind, because I was like, hey, gun, yeah. like, gun games are back! And... Um, <laughs> And that has IR sensors. Right. So you just put the IR sensors on top of your TV, and then it's USB into the PS3. But that feels, mm -hmm. that feels different, too. Yeah. Because it's just IR. Like, mm. it, 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 it feels in the same way that Wii does. There's a slight disconnect. But, the, but I can't think of any other games that used it. I know I certainly don't have any. So like it, no, really, I, it really petered off on the PS3. It went, yeah. uh, Light Gun was pretty much exclusively a Wii thing now at that point. Yeah. You know, I think it might be something just as simple as the fact that um, anything using IR doesn't have the flash that the yeah. old ones did. I think it might just be something as simple as that. So, like, the, the, the older light gun games, they, the, it, it's just so associated with the fact you pull the trigger, you'll get a flash on the screen. And that, that was part of the feedback of it, I think. Yeah. So, on, on, like, even as far back as the Wii Zapper, you pulled the trigger and it had that satisfying sort of sprung click on it. But mm -hmm. you'd also have the, the flash on the screen, you'd have the sound effects, and it was all part of the overall experience. And, um, like, like Wii shooters and presumably the, uh, the GunCon 3 stuff, um, would, would have lacked that because it, it didn't need it anymore. So, I think, uh, that might be something that, uh, people designing more recent games might just might not have thought of as being a key part of the experience for some people but yeah i think that might, that may well be part of it um but anyway ghost squad ghost squad <laughs> oh my um so i i picked up ghost squad just just the other day because i just happened to wander into uh cex so our, our national chain of sort of secondhand game shops and I thought, I fancy a few Wii games, so I picked up a couple of things. I picked up, um, the, there's a Harvest Moon game for Wii that I picked up that I haven't tried yet. Uh, and I picked up Ghost Squad, because um, I thought, I've seen this around, but I've never actually tried it. It's by Sega. Uh, it looks like it might be a bit of fun, and it was like it was like a pound or something like that. So I thought, I'll give it a go. Mm. I popped it in my Wii, and I was like, oh my god, this is, this is, this is like a proper old school light gun shooter. Like, yeah, it's it feels... It feels like sort of time crisis in yeah, terms well, it's, of execution it's, and stuff. It's meant to be. It's meant to be as the successor to Virtua Cop. Yes, yes, and it very much feels that way as well. So, so Ghost Squad, if you're unfamiliar, is um, a game where you play part of um, a special forces team. The plot doesn't matter at all. <laughs> There's just a whole bunch of bad guys between you and a super bad guy. And I was say one to... bad guy matters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you just blast your way through these hordes of enemies uh, until you get to the boss at the end who you generally have to kill in a slightly unusual way uh, in some cases. So like the first boss uh, is in a helicopter so you have to shoot him down with a missile launcher. The second one you've got to get with a headshot with just one shot and I can't remember what you have to do with the last one but it's like on a boat or something I think. But um, yeah, the thing with Ghost Squad is that um, although 
at its core is very much like a very traditional light gun shooter with just sort of blast your way through everything it's got a whole bunch of interesting little mechanics that it brings up around the place so one of its key usps is the fact that uh you have branching pathways through the levels uh, and so every so often you'll get given a they call it a tactical decision um, and so like you might have the choice to either go and prioritize rescuing hostages or break into a room and just try and defeat all the enemies and depending on the choices you make along the way you'll have a different route through that level or different objectives to complete and um, the game makes use of an action button as well as the fire button so um, sometimes when you're rescuing hostages you have to press the action button to handcuff them rather than shooting them um, and so it just gives you an extra thing to think about and makes things a bit more interesting um but then that also has some extra modes along the way as well so the wii version has this party mode where you can play with up to four people and one of the variations on that is ninja mode uh which means that it plays like ninja assault so you're throwing shuriken instead of shooting things and they actually bother to update the in-game model so the characters look like ninjas they replace all the physics objects in the levels with japanese inspired things so like instead of like a bowl of fruit on the table that will go flying if you shoot it it's a japanese doll that will sort of explode in a weird posed with fans when you shoot it instead and it's just delightful there's a um, strong meta game and that's why i always like like ghost squad because there's other guns to unlock that change yes, the way the game plays yes and level up so, too don't they level up or yeah so this there's, there's like a progression system in this and this was actually in the original arcade version i was surprised to discover it. it was one of those games that you used sort of those reusable cards that you could plug in oh okay um apparently that uh that particular mechanic didn't make it to most of the north american releases of the game but in japan it was it was one where you were supposed to buy one of these rewritable cards and that would be good for up to 100 games. Um, and you'd plug the card in and uh, you would record your name and your profile on it. And you'd be able to level up. And, and leveling up would unlock new weapons for you to use. It would unlock new outfits for your character to appear in the cutscenes. Um, you'd get a new title as well so like you'd have a, a sort of military rank and that would appear on the high score table and so on so like if you played the game a bunch you'd be like a like a colonel or something like that and if you got a high score you'd be like colonel pete on the high score table um but yeah obviously that was that made perfect sense to transfer over into the home version as well so you have all these unlockables and this this meta game of of uh, of getting you weapons and you um new costumes for your character and so yeah there's there's plenty of replay value there so between the different routes through the game um and actually the the better you do at the game and the more you play it the more of the different routes you have available as well so i think there's there's something ridiculous like so this like 16 different difficulty levels for it mm. uh, and so every time you beat a level and successfully beat the final boss for that level because you can clear the level without killing the final boss and that 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 counts as clearing the level but not succeeding it mm -hmm. um so every time you act you actually pull off the last thing you need to do defeating the final boss in a time limit usually uh, the mission level will go up by one and the higher the mission level is the more choices you have to make over the course of the level no oh, okay. um and so you have more different uh, different routes you can take, um, and that obviously provides you with potential to score more points because you can make the level last longer if you want to, um, and that kind of thing. So yeah, there's there's like a really really surprisingly deep meta game to the experience as well. But at its core, it is is pointing at the screen and shooting bad guys and sure. fall over. Sure. Yeah, um, Ghost Squad just always was one of the games where like <coughs> uh, when I had to take a defensive stance and stand up for gun for light gun games i was always like here's one that's actually worth your money because yeah. being a uh, lots of people it was always 
you know, I'm hesitant to buy it. It's an arcade yeah. experience. It's a half hour, and there's no, you know, it doesn't change. There's nothing to develop. If you're not mm-hmm. a score hunter player, there's very little to a gun, a light gun game. But uh, yeah, but Time Crisis and Time Crisis Ghost Squad was one of those games where I could always say to people, "Well, here's here's a game with." Uh, different playthroughs, things to unlock, things yes. to grind out. Like so, here was an example of a light gun game that did home version very, very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think an interesting development is the fact that people have come a lot more around to this idea of traditional arcade games again. Now, I think people are a lot more familiar with score attack and that sort of thing. Because we're all inter- grumpy adults, a game that we takes are- a half hour to play through is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, there's that. I think the internet has helped as well. So, sort of like um, the fact that there's been a fair few internet games that have a strong emphasis on score attack and leaderboards and beating your friends and that sort of thing i think that's helped as well sure um so like when i when i think back to sort of my my big sort of conversion back to appreciating arcade style games again was probably geometry wars yeah xbox um just because that plays such a strong focus on its leaderboards i mean geometry wars 2 literally the mode selection screen had the leaderboards right there ready for you um and so i think that element of competition has has really helped people to be a bit more accepting of this structure of game again so and we're starting to see a lot more of those appearing again. So we're starting to see shoot 'em ups getting retail releases and that sort of thing. So we had Raiden Five a while back, for example. Um, we haven't really seen many light gun games get big releases. I mean, the most we've seen is sort of some of these VR games getting retail releases. But I think, I think sort of, sort of, we're we're on track to maybe see it a bit more accepted again uh in in the near future just because people are a bit more familiar with that sort mm-hmm. of game um but yeah ghost squad was cool another another wii one that i wanted to bring up was actually we play motion which was another one of these games that i picked up the other day for like, like a pound from cex and it's easy to dismiss we play motion as just another collection of mini games because you know it's it's part of nintendo's wii series that was sort of their thing um, but We Play Motion was a game that um, actually has a really interesting story behind it because it, it came out a little bit after Nintendo developed the, the Wii Remote Plus, which was the Wii Remote that had the Motion Plus accessory built into it. Mm-hmm. And the Motion Plus accessory was the thing that allowed the Wii Remote to much more accurately sense um, six degrees of movement. So rather than uh, just relying purely on the on the IR sensor, um, it had much better sort of gyroscopic sensing capabilities, and so that then informed the development of how good the Wii U gamepad is at sensing motion and that sort of thing. But um, Wii Play Motion was developed um, as uh, almost as a competition between a bunch of different developers. So Nintendo got a bunch of people together and said, "Right, we've got this new tech, and we want to show people how cool it is." Uh, and so you go away and develop some prototypes and we'll flesh out the best ones into a game and collect them all together and call it we play motion and so um the project involved um so i'm just gonna have to refer back to my list of this because i wrote about it the other day um because it's like a really all-star list of people who got involved with it um so there was um yuji naka's post sonic studio which is uh probe Oh jeez, um, yeah. Okay, if Probe's was, involved, I'm there. You don't even have to yeah. list the name more. Yeah, so so Probe involved. Uh, there was uh, Chunsoft. Uh, oh it was wow. Good, yeah, uh, Goodfeel. Who I always forget what they made, but it was it was something quite well known. Uh, it was Arzest, who which was the company that was set up by um, a bunch of former Sega employees, including uh, Naoto Oshima, who was the original character designer of Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, 
Goodfield, oh, Goodfield made uh, Wario Land Shake It, Kirby's Epic Yarn, and a bunch of Street Pass games, and they're currently working on Yoshi's Crafted World, so they, they've oh, done okay. a lot with Nintendo. Um, there is Skip, uh, who was uh, set up by a guy who used to work for Square, so they're mostly well-known for the bit generations and art-style games. But they also are made, all wonderful. Yeah, uh, they also made Chibi Robo, so that's probably their most well-known one. Uh, Probe, we've already mentioned. Um... There was uh, Mitchell Corporation who made Pang uh, and um, Polarium. Actually, we talked about on the DS episode a while back. Oh, I love Polarium. Yeah. Uh, and Van Paul who made uh, Tinkle's Rosy Rupee Land and the Ro- Dylan's Rolling Western games. So, like, this... this, this the, the the talent who got involved in this like throwaway collection of mini games is astonishing, really. Um, but yeah, the main reason I wanted to bring it up is is uh, Probe's game um, as part of this, which which was called Trigger Twist. Uh, and the the concept for Trigger Twist uh, was that uh, Yuji Naka and friends decided that they wanted to make a light gun shooter that extended outside of your TV. Um, and so the, the original concept was uh, as, as a horror game. They wanted the game where you were climbing up a uh, like a sort of spooky old town shooting ghosts. They eventually had to change that because one of the other teams was also making on a ghost themed game and they didn't want to do two of them. Um, and so the, the other ghost themed game was made by, uh, I think it was Arzest. Yeah, Arzest made, made a game where you point the Wii Remote around and use the sound in the speaker to oh, locate cool. ghosts. Um, and so Probe uh, decided to do something a bit different. So they they took the, this same idea of making a light gun shooter that didn't require you to point the gun at the TV, and they made they made three stages. So three distinct stages. So the first one is was clearly inspired by Duck Hunt. So you're out in a field, um, and initially you're just shooting targets, and then you, excuse me, and then you're shooting balloons, and then you're shooting UFOs, and you're preventing me's from getting abducted by them. But the really clever thing is, um, it doesn't use the pointer functionality okay. at all. So rather than so rather than using the IR sensor, it just uses the Wii Motion Plus okay. gyroscope, uh, and, and so it knows which direction you're pointing. So it knows when you're pointing at the screen, and it can accurately sort of reflect where you're pointing on the screen if you're pointing at actually in, in the direction of your television but the cool thing is if you point the the remote off to your side or over your shoulder that will then rotate the camera angle on the tv so that you're looking to your side or behind you and you've still got a crosshair on screen you can still move the controller around pointing in a completely oh, different cool. direction and still aim and hit things accurately so um so the concept of this game was that things would come from all directions. So you get a little notification, a little arrow on the screen that's saying, oh, there's something over on your left. So you have to point the remote off to your left but, but while you're still that's looking at That's straight up Panzer Dragoon. So um, it doesn't surprise me that Yuji Naka yeah. thought of this. Yeah. But it, but it works brilliantly well. And it's like, I've never seen this done before, but it works absolutely perfectly. Even if you... Even if you like invert the remote and point it over your shoulder to shoot something behind you, it is still completely and utterly accurate. So like you can you can accurately shoot things that are quite behind you, so sort of behind where you're sitting, and it still works brilliantly. And yeah, I I was just really surprised that this concept was never sort of really fleshed out and done is something done a bit more with. So I know we had. We had various things that used a vaguely similar idea to do first-person shooter mechanics on the Wii, but that tended to be uh, a case of, um, rather than using the Wii Remote Plus, 
um, it would be a case of you'd move the pointer towards the side of the screen and it would pan in that direction. So that was quite a common use of it. I think the Metroid mm-hmm. games did that and there were various others that did that kind of thing. But this, this idea of actually pointing the remote in a particular direction and actually swinging the camera angle around is not something I'd seen before. But But once you get used to the idea of pointing the device in one direction and remaining sort of keeping your eyes fixed on the tv it becomes really really natural and i was so impressed with that game um so yeah we remote uh, we we play uh, what's it called we play motion definitely well worth a look it's like this this was one of those collections that i sort of written off because like oh you know we sure. game collection and that sort of thing but ju- just like the sheer talent involved in this game and and how well fleshed out all these ideas were is just just well worth taking a look at um it was and like it was it was a real experiment for nintendo at the time it was um iwata was he said at the time this is not something nintendo has ever done before and i don't think anyone has ever developed a game like this before but that yeah the final result was just just hmm. excellent i'm sure it can be gotten for a song so at this yeah point. Yeah, yeah, like I say, I got my copy for like two pounds. So um, obviously, obviously, you need a Wii Remote Plus or a Wii Remote with a Motion Plus in it at the time, which is probably the main reason why this sort of um, this sort of control scheme was not more widespread or more widely adopted. Because you, yeah, ideally, you don't want to make people rely on an external accessory. But um, I mean, the the Wii U. Um, its default controller was the Wii, uh, the Wii Remote Plus. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's just surprising it wasn't explored a bit more because it it works really well. So that's that's one that really um, struck me recently and is really fresh in my mind. So very cool. I'll definitely have to give that a try. Yeah, yeah, I highly recommend it. So, um, like I say, my my only real other sort of experience with light gun games recently has been in VR. Mm. Um, yeah, and so, that seems like so, the nat- next natural step of where it would have to go. Yeah, I mean it makes sense, and so so like using stuff like the move controllers and 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 such. The the most natural use for those is still shooting at things. I know you can sort of make arguments about oh we should be better than that by now, but no, it, it's still fun and it's still satisfying. And there's there's some good games that leverage that control scheme. So um, I'm I'm just trying to remember what they were called because I can I can never remember. The name of one of them. Wasn't um, that, that Blue Reflection or what was that game? No, not no, not Blue Reflection. Blue Blue Estate. Blue Estate. Actually, yes, that's I, it. yes, I did want to mention Blue Blue Estate because that is technically not a light gun shooter, so that doesn't support move or anything like that. Oh. Um, that is a PS4 game that actually came out quite early in the PS4's life. It's a digital oh. download only game. Why did I think um, that was VR? There are some VR gun games though. Yes, there are. They might have actually done a VR version of Blue Estate. I I, I want to say that that is a thing that. Exists exist but without looking it up i'm not sure um blue estate actually thank you for reminding me of that because that's that's a really cool one that one actually uses the dual shot force motion controller oh okay um and so so you sort of point the dual shot four vaguely at the screen and you, you you tilt it around to move an aim sight on the screen um it's not perfect uh it, the fact it has a dedicated recenter your sights button on it, it sort of is testament to how not perfect it is sure um but it is a good balance between um sort of just moving a cursor around on the screen and actually having that physicality aspect in there plus it's a really cool game as well because it's it's got a really nice blend of humor and drama to it so it's it's sort of like um i guess you'd call it a sort of comedy crime drama 
Um, it's very similar in tone to um, the House of the Dead Overkill. Oh, okay. Uh, and so there's there's lots of foul language and swearing and silly scenes in it. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just got these really cool set pieces where you're fighting a variety of different enemies. There's some really interesting boss fights. It makes really, really cool use of the environment in a lot of places as well. So there's sort of sequences. There's, there's a sequence where you're in a Chinese restaurant and you're sort of crawling over this dragon statue that's in the ceiling. So it makes really creative use of camera angles and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so that that is one that's well worth checking out. It's not technically a light gun game, but it has a a, a, a lot in common with that sort of ex- execution. As an early PS4 game, it came out before PSVR and before uh, the PS4's compatibility with PlayStation Move. So it was it was a good attempt to kind of resurrect that genre. And it's not a very well known game, but it's well worth checking out. And it's it's dead cheap on uh, PSN. I don't think there's a physical version of it, but it's. Uh, yeah, you can get it for like two or three pounds on PSN. So that's well worth checking out if you have the opportunity to. Um, yeah, like I say, um, the other stuff that I've done um, is uh, just VR stuff. So I'm just looking up the ones that I have actually played recently. So, uh, right, there was Mortal Blitz on PS4. PSVR was probably the most striking one. This was one that was powered by Unreal Engine, so it's got really nice graphics. Uh, it's got very good sort of um, character models in it. And it's got that really nice sense of um, the physical presence there as well. So, you, you, like, it makes use of the camera to know where you're standing. And you can actually sort of physically duck under objects that are, are shooting at you and so on. It makes really nice of sort of a, a bullet time type technique as well. So um, the concept in this one is you, you can dual wield guns with two move controllers, uh, but you're actually better off wielding one gun in your dominant hand and using your other hand for this sort of, um, it's a sort of electric lasso type thing. And what you can do is when you stun an enemy, you can grab them with this electric lasso and fling them up in the air, at which point the game goes into slow motion. You can just riddle them with bullets as they're flying over your head. Um, and most of your bonus points and combos in the game come from using that mechanic creatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's a really satisfying physical game. Uh, the other one that I played around the same time of that and wrote about in the same article is one called Pixel Gear, uh, which was from a Chinese developer called Geronimo Interactive. Um, and this one is uh, um, sort of uses the voxel-style aesthetic, so it's quite a, a sort of Minecrafty look to it. Um, but this, this was cool because it's... Uh, it, in terms of structure it's pretty simple uh it's all about sort of you standing on a particular place and enemies coming towards you from all directions uh, and so you need to look around see where they're coming from recognize their attack patterns uh and then there's boss fights in that that are all sort of very um very pattern recognition based as well so in terms of structure and execution that's very traditional but the fact it's in vr gives it a, a different twist to it and it that one plays really well as well so that's uh, pixel gear so that's worth a look if you have the opportunity and the hardware as well um so i think that's sort of all the ones i wanted to bring up for the minute was there anything else you wanted to to mention well i just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about as i mentioned earlier that um you know we, we talked a lot about home a home light gun games and yes it, the you know the reluctance of some people to commit to the additional accessories and stuff um something i always found interesting when thinking about light gun games is just the fact that essentially they're an arcade experience so i had i had written down some interesting light gun games that i enjoyed from the arcades that just were were so experiential that they're just not they never translated well to to home or didn't at all so things like silent scope 
Yes. Right. Like the home version of Silence Scope are just doo doo stupid. Like, yeah. like there's no reason to even play them because you didn't have that giant rifle with the screen in the scope. Like nothing compares to to Silent Scope in the yeah. arcade. Where um, I don't know, maybe some of our younger friends have never played Silent Scope. So the whole <laughs> thing about Silent Scope is it is a sniper game, sniper light gun game, and you have a giant rifle, and the scope yeah. of the rifle actually has a screen built into it. Yes. So if you look at the screen on the arcade cabinet, you're just seeing what you, a person, would see looking out from the rooftop, right? Everything is tiny, and there's a huge vista. When you look into your into the scope of the rifle accessory you have in your hands there, you actually get a magnified view of wherever that rifle is pointing on the screen. Wherever that rifle is pointing at the large screen on the cabinet, you get the magnified view in your scope, just like a sniper would. Yeah. So the idea is to, you have to kind of play a combination of looking out of, at the big screen to kind of situate where you're pointing your rifle, and then when it's time to make your shots, looking into that scope for that view. Yeah. So it's totally just, when you play the home versions, all you have is the is a reticule a big circle that is what you would have seen in your scope on the arcade version and you're just moving that around like a magnifying glass on the screen yes and it's dumb it's like playing an it's like playing one of those i spy item finder games <laughs> it totally takes like all the thrill out of it um so that was an example of one that's kind of arcade only um, you know, we talked about Time Crisis a bit. Nothing compares yeah. to Time Crisis in the arcades with that massive cabinet and those those uh, diamond plate metal freaking steps for the for the cover yeah. mechanic. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can you could have bought like I did a a gun with the pedal, but it just never compares. Um, yeah. One more I had written down was uh, L.A. Machine Gunners. Have you ever played L.A. Machine Gunners? I haven't, no, but I know they say there's a Wii version of that that I really want to get my hands on. Yeah, it's like the arcade version of LA Machine Gunners is just like another one of those examples of like a massive experience. So the the cabinet is tremendous. And the yes. whole and the whole setting of LA Machine Gunners is you're you are one of you know, in a helicopter, those giant like pintle mounted guns that like hang down. Yeah. So you're operating one of those in a helicopter. Yeah. So in the arcade the the full arcade machine you are standing on a plat on a metal platform the metal platform has rumble built into it to simulate the the propeller feedback from being in the helicopter so you're standing on like unsteady ground then you have that giant machine gun that's mounted on a pintle in front of you that you're like swinging around like a madman and so, like, so the, and the screen is huge because the whole machine is huge, and it's it's swimming swinging these dynamic camera angles because it's simulating this this helicopter as it pitches and yaws around, and you're moving this massive machine gun around. The machine gun, <laughs> the power of the vibration motor in the machine gun is ridiculous. Like sometimes, <laughs> like sometimes it's hard to hold on to. It's like your whole your whole arms are shaking. And all the enemies are sweet robots, so so nice. it's just it's just an amazing experience to actually play the arcade version of LA Machine Gunners. Mm. 
Actually, I, you're thinking about it. I've got a couple of arcade exclusive games that I wanted to bring up that, um, yeah, so that you've reminded me of. So the first one is um, Lucky and Wild. Did you ever play that? Is that that like weird jungle one from Sega? No, this this was a. Oh a no, 1990- that's Jumbo Safari. <laughs> yeah, this this was a 1992 game by Namco, uh, and it was a hybrid of driving game and light gun shooter. Oh, didn't um, one person do the gun and one person had to drive? Or so, so, so one person had to drive and shoot, oh, okay. uh, and the other and the other person had to just shoot. So it was it was supposed to be like a buddy cop game. So it was inspired by Tango and Cash and Starsky and Hutch and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, they did that um, with the Starsky and Hutch game on the PS2. They recreated yeah. that. Yeah. So, so the actual cabinet for this was like a big screen uh, with like a, a sort of um, hydraulic car cabinet. So one person would sit in the driving seat. They'd have the steering wheel and the pedals and stuff. But they'd also have uh, there was a gun that was like hard mounted on the um, on the on the, uh, the the dashboard. Okay. That they could like, tilt around and aim that way. And then the other person had like uh, a standard uh, wired light gun that they could shoot at the screen. So. Um, some people uh, apparently played this three-player, but this is regarded as an unofficial variant um, <laughs> where you'd have one person driving, one person sitting in the middle manning this first gun, and then a third person manning the other gun. Or there were some people who would drive and they'd fire both, <laughs> both guns at the same time. So there were lots of different ways you could play, but te- technically it was a two-player game. Um, but yeah, it was sort of like an early um, sprite-scaling-based driving game where you, you drive around various ridiculous situations and have to shoot things while you were doing that. So it kind of blended bits of um, Chase HQ in there, so you'd have to sort of chase down criminals and shoot them. Um, but there were loads of really ridiculous set pieces, like driving through a mall in your car and that sort of thing. So that was a really cool one. Um, the other one I went to to bring up is actually a more recent one that I only came across like last year or so. It was apparently released in 2012. But if you ever, it's another Namco game actually. So Namco were clearly the king of these weird experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you have you ever heard of Dark Escape 4D? No. Dark Escape 4D. Oh, this is incredible. So um, me and my wife we went on holiday um, like last year to uh, a seaside town called Bournemouth. That's quite near us. Um, and here in the UK the seaside has always been pretty much the only place you'll find amusement arcades if you find an amusement arcade anywhere else uh, it'll be like just slot machines and stuff like that so you'd go to the seaside if you wanted uh, arcades and i'm i'm i was very pleased to discover that although arcades are dying all over the place all over the world uh, you can still go to bournemouth and go and play arcade games on the pier on the seafront and one of the games I saw here was this massive, massive cabinet called Dark Escape 4D. And it was set up in such a way that you couldn't see the screen. There was like a sort of curtain you had to go through to get into it, like a photo booth. And um, yeah, it was just obviously this horror-inspired game. So there was like a sort of silhouette of a woman up against a, a window at the back, sort of trying to get out or something like that. Um, and you get in there, and it's 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 a sit down light gun shooter. So you, you you sit in this seat, you have a gun, um, but um, it has like surround sound in there. It has a seat that vibrates. Um, it has air cannons that blast smells at you while you're playing. Um, and uh, on the grip of the gun, there is a heart rate sensor. So as you as you are playing the game and your heart rate is is jumping around, uh, things will happen in the game to make you panic more. Um, and so if you're playing it multiplayer as well it will sort of compare who panicked the most during the game it's blasting you with these smells and air all the while and yeah it's just absolutely ridiculous um i think the new house of the dead is kind of like this it's one of those like contained cabinets 
yeah but yeah it's it's a fantastic experience so uh, if you happen to see one of these cabinets in the wild then jump in there and, and have a go the, the game itself doesn't last very long if if uh, you're as bad at light gun games as i am but um yeah it's it's worth it for the experience just to see how much effort they've put into making something that could only be done in the arcade for my American friends, it appears that Dave & Buster's is quite fond of having these machines. Yes, so. yes, I, I, I just saw that from a, a, a casual Google search. So, um, yeah, that's that's the place to go if you want to play Dark Escape 4D. Cool. Yeah, so much. We could just I could just list titles, you know. There's <laughs> just so much fun to be had with the mm. light gun stuff. Oh, well, yeah, one more. Um, <laughs> I won't keep us all day, but yeah, one more. Um, there was uh, Rail Chase. You remember that? No, no, I, th I don't know I th that one. I, th I think that might have been a Sega game, actually. Let me just look it up. Uh, Rail Chase. Yes, this was from Sega. This was, this was sort of uh, early 90s, and this was like when Sega was big into doing its hydraulic cabinets and so on. Oh, um, sure. This, this one, the idea was um, you were sort of riding like a mine cart. Um, I... I I forget if this one was actually a light gun shooter, but it was certainly executed like a light gun shooter. Looking at the pictures, it looks like it might actually have just been joysticks and you're moving sights around on the screen. Uh, but the big thing with it is, is you sat on a bench with uh, you and you and a friend if you're playing two player, and like the whole thing was like jolting you around and tipping you around in sync with what was happening on the screen at the same time. So, um, yeah, that was cool. So it was it was designed to be a motion ride as much as it was a, a shoot 'em up. So. <laughs> This, yeah. this YouTube so, so, footage is making me ill. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, yeah, so so that's quite an old one, but um, again, if you have the chance to, to play on a working model of those, then uh, highly recommended. Very cool. I will mention one more, too, because I have to mention at least one weird super Japanese game. <laughs> um so, not a weird arcade-specific experience, but I want to just bring up Elemental Gearbolt. Oh, yes. Because Elemental Gearbolt is delightful. Um, so, Elemental Gearbolt was designed by Alpha Systems, who are mm -hmm. perhaps better known for their uh, horizontal... I'm sorry, their, their top-down shooters, the Shikigami no Shiro series. The yeah. Castle of Shikigami. Um and it is a pretty typical light gun shooter, but atypical in its setting, which is this really kind of dark, broody fantasy setting. Um, it's almost reminiscent of Panzer Dragoon, like really weird alien structures and technology everywhere. Um, okay. And, and the big hook is that your gun is shooting magic. Okay. Right, so you have, and you can cycle between elements. And so, like, the, the kind of main gameplay hook is understanding, like, the enemy weaknesses and cycling yeah. through the different elements for your magic shots. Um, mm -hmm. There's a leveling system based on your score chaining. And just a general strong emphasis on story, because this wasn't an arcade game at all. Yeah. It was for home. So there, there's, there's animated cinematics. There's just a strong emphasis on the atmosphere and the story and the presentation. Um... It was localized in the U.S. by Working Designs. Ah, that's why I know. Which it. Yeah, would give you kind of an idea of, of kind of what kind of game it is. Super yes. anime. Um, it's perhaps most famous for um, 
the most special edition of it is one of the most expensive games on the collector's market because mm-hmm. Working Designs made a Assassin's Edition that was yeah. only available, I think, at like a convention. It was like only available like at E3 or something ridiculous. Like, and there was only like 40 or something of them ever made. And it, right. co- it comes in a metal case with the game, a gold-plated gun con, and gold-plated <laughs> memory card. And they're not actual wow. gold. They're just made yeah. of that like, you know, like that chrome gold plastic. Yeah, yeah. But on the collector's market, it's one of one of like the things like that goes for like thousands. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I don't think that came out here because a lot of working design stuff didn't make it over here for one reason. I think the the only one that sort of really got any traction was Alundra, uh, but I don't think that came out over here. But yeah, when when you mentioned this, I was trying to think where I knew the name from, and I had it in my mind that this was just a traditional shooter for some reason, but uh, I think I was getting it muddled up with something else. Yeah, it's it's worth just to look footage <laughs> up to see how how radically different the presentation and the setting is from every other light gun game you've ever played essentially yeah definitely the characters you play as are like suit the story in this game's like super tragic and stuff but like you basically play as these like these twin girls who have been who were like killed in like one of like the war conflicts and their like bodies were like modified and then like revived from the dead as like witch cyborgs that like shoot like elemental magic <laughs> so you're you're basically playing as like reanimated cyborg corpses like trying to navigate like this like fantasy anime like conflict with your magic mm. gun it's really crazy kind of reminds me slightly of um Asterbreed, the story of that i know that's mech rather than magic but uh yeah, the, the concept of that, sort of people being resurrected as weapons, sounds a very similar concept to that. Mm, okay. Mm. But yeah, Elemental right. Gearbolt, that's my weird That's my weird game for the episode. Sounds good. Alright, should we wrap that up there then? Yes. Okay, so, as always, uh, would you like to tell people where to find you on the internet? Sure. Uh, I'm always at MrGilderPixels.com or on uh, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram as MrGilderPixels. Um, just come check out. I'm always posting work in progress of my latest artwork and stuff, so I'd love to hear from you guys. Excellent. And as always, you can find my articles on moegamer.net. Uh, you can find my YouTube channel. Um, you may be watching this on YouTube. If you're listening on SoundCloud, there'll be a link to the YouTube channel down in the in the description of this episode. Uh, you can also see what I'm up to on atari8z.wordpress.com, which collects together my YouTube videos of Atari 8-bit and ST games and videopackgames.wordpress.com where I'm cataloging the games of the uh, Philips Videopack G7000 computer. I got those words in the wrong order, but never mind. Uh, Or Magnavox Odyssey 2, Americans will know that as. As always, thank you very much for watching and or listening, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.